0: Let's take it to the edge Let's get the
1: Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives. I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daly Knives. And this is the Knife Perspective, episode number 084. what? Knives? The jungle? I don't know. Guys, I got to be honest. I didn't have a chance to write uh, an intro or title to this one. So uh, this is it. Um, all natural. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? I, I, I hope you're doing better than I am.
2: <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Uh almost all the knives that I sent to Knife Center were gone. They're sold. So Sweet. I was pretty excited to see that. And uh That's awesome, dude. Yeah. So the bushcrafters got a pretty good reception the first time for the the bigger one. Uh the pocket bushcrafters sold really quick. I'm always surprised at how quickly that red fire hose handle material sells. For for me personally, it's not one of my favorites, but uh, apparently one of uh, a lot of other people's favorites.
1: As people will hear in this podcast, because this may shock them, it's not actually recorded in order. We do some some editing magic. We're going to talk a lot about well, not a lot. We're going to talk some about you don't necessarily make the knife for you. You make the knife for people. They're going to buy it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It, Red fire hose isn't your thing. If you're going to be a knife maker rather than a guy that makes knives, it doesn't matter if it's your thing. It's if the people that are going to buy it, if it's their thing. Yeah.
2: those That red fire hose makes me cry a little bit every time because you, uh, it likes to, the fibers like to puff out when you sand it. So you got to like spray it with some Windex and some finer grit and takes a little bit longer to finish.
1: You, you want to know how many fire hose handles I've done? Two. Two? Because the first one might have been a fluke. The second one, it turns out, those fibers really do pull out. And yeah, no, I, I, I don't do that anymore. Oh, well, So my hat is off to you.
2: Uh, I've got about four more square feet of it. So. Uh, <laughs> I was just thinking. <laughs> you impulse bought my car didn't you? <laughs> no. I bought a bought a half
1: sheet so by the end you're going to have it figured out yeah
2: so but yeah the that's been good and just getting back into the swing of things and uh hopefully uh hopefully things go go smoothly for the the next couple of got some some products that hopefully i will be releasing soon and uh the the my handle i'm calling it the handle buddy uh kind of helps with the, the front of the, the handles with the curve and I then, saw
1: the how to video. Yeah,
2: marking the thickness and stuff was uh I when I first posted about it it didn't seem to get a whole lot of buzz and then uh finally did uh did some more posting about it. Thanks uh David Burke for saying that he thought it was gonna be awesome. And uh yeah it uh ended up surprising me how many people wanted me to to make and ship
1: those out just as a a, a side note this is not uh, this is not a comment on you or your naming scheme or i just uh, are you aware of how many times you use buddy in the names of your products yep two sanding buddy marking buddy Handle buddy. Uh bandsaw buddy. <laughs> handle buddy. I mean that's just off the top of my head. Like you I mean your product line is riddled with buddies. Two two buddies. Uh, by the way you count them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it seemed to work out well. And I thought it was uh work pretty well. Yeah, I really like how they have the different thicknesses. It helps me with that Coke bottle uh shape that I like to do. Um yep. So, I was kind of just like eyeing it up, and then I kinda of like I started using a height gauge and then measuring them and trying to scribe it and it just took took a long time and these you can just put right up there, use a marker color in the whole spot to remove, and then take that taper right down
1: well and it's um arguably how the podcast got started uh If I have a question about it, if I need this thing. Then there's a chance there's some other knife maker that needs
2: it hmm yeah, I thought it might be good for some of the integral bolster people too. They've had a couple of people mm. buy that too for the marking out there. They can put it right against the the blade and mark out the the height there,
1: yeah, yeah. you'd being all professional and repeatable and consistent and stuff yeah
2: that's it's a disease. <laughs> How are you doing
1: tonight Dan? Uh I am doing really well. Um it's been I'm not going to lie, it's been a rough couple of weeks. I've been working on digging myself out of a lot of backup orders. It's been some uh some long days, but I'm I'm starting to get a little ca- caught up. Um and tonight y'all are going to get a little a little gentler, a little more relaxed, Dan. Uh we could talk about the theories as to why but uh I I'm feeling a little more a little more relaxed, a little more easygoing than I have been in a really long time.
2: I think the uh, old uh, Chip Carlisle is going to be really impressed. Smooth smooth Dan. Yeah, I
1: I'm actually kind of proud of that. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second but I am. I'm actually a little proud of that. Yeah. I
2: know when uh, Chip hears this, he's gonna instantly message me.
1: <laughs> uh, he's gonna wonder what you gave me and where the obscenities were. I you know, unless something happens in the next few segments, which I feel pretty confident about. Uh good news, bad news, guys, this is going to be a vulgarity free episode. Um it's taken a little work, a little bit of of it was for Kyle to make his life easier. Or a little bit of it was years of intense therapy. But uh, hey, you know what? This is going to be an obscenity-free episode. A little another gift I'm giving to the universe. Excellent.
2: You want to talk about our first sponsor?
1: I do. Um, do I have to do it in order? Nope. Like, I could just pick, say, Set Supply? Yeah. Spencer, Ed, and Todd. Mm-hmm. And, man, we need to have Todd back. on. I, I need some balance to this thing. We have been so squeaky clean lately. It, 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 it's been so pure around here. I'm not even using obscenities anymore. <laughs> but Spencer, Ed, and Todd, um, I love the fact that they're all people in the industry. It's kind of a for the industry, by the industry concept. Uh, I used their universal um, uh, knife vise. I love it. Uh, a little feedback I gave them was we're not all freakishly tall like Todd. And they've made some adjustments. Uh, love it. Uh, I really like some of the inlays they're doing for handle materials. Mm-hmm. And they're genuinely nice guys. I like that I can support not only good people, but we're keeping it in the industry. There are other makers that we're helping out. So I want to thank the guys at SEP for their support and that I genuinely appreciate their products.
2: Yeah. And uh, we've got Phoenix Abrasives and you can use discount code KP10 for 10% off your order there. They've got all sorts of uh, different belts. They're starting to get in a bunch of the, the VSM belts also. Uh, lots of people are really seem to be liking that. And, uh, yeah, I've been using a bunch of that, uh, Rhino stick, uh, recently. It's the two and three quarter inch wide, uh, pre-applied adhesive on the back of the Rhino wet paper for some of my sanding sticks. Oh,
1: so it sticks. Mm-hmm. I get it now. Rhino stick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's pretty solid marketing, which is another thing we will talk about later in the episode. <laughs> yep. Um, that leaves me. No, do I want to do Ridge Runner? Do I want to do Atlas? Do I want to do Jans? I'm gonna go with Ridge Runner. Um, mainly because Taylor's a friend of mine. I have really been impressed with. He's a blade guy. He's a knife guy. He's a maker. It has been really impressive with the way they've grown that shop. Now that he's taken over, um, they are doing a good job. They keep the production stuff around the, the bang for the buck kind of thing, but they're starting to invest in some of the, the custom stuff and they're hitting that right spot. Um, they're investing in some makers that you haven't quite heard of. So the bang for the buck is really good. But they're going to be the guys that you're glad you had it. You know, five, six. They're investing several years ahead of the market, which as a maker, I appreciate. I love that they're getting into the industry and investing in makers. They are trying to build their their kitchen line. They realize that that's. That's a market that a lot of us are interested in. It's been a little bit of an uphill battle but they're starting to invest on the kitchen side so take a look at them for your kitchen knives as well but they have got a really solid line of outdoor and tactical knives everything from the inexpensive but quality production brands to to Winkler and some of the higher end custom guys but I love the fact that they're finding They're working with the new makers. They're finding some really good bang for the buck investment guys. Very cool. And that concludes my Ted talk.
2: (laughs) We also have Atlas materials. Like I mentioned before, with the red fire hose, uh, got a, they've got that, uh, pretty much anything that you can possibly think of. Uh, if you wanted to get some, let's say, uh, G 10 or Makarta rods, you can get it in four foot links for your,
1: your pin cutting sled. And And they uh, have it in, Tri color now. Yeah, they've got all the colors. Uh, you cannot just get single colored rods, two colored rods, but you can now get some really funky three colored rods. Yep. So,
2: uh, all the different ones, give Natasha and Dan a call over there and they can help you sort out anything that you need. Uh, Natasha also wanted you guys to know about checking out their eBay store. That's where they put a lot of the stuff that is. Either no longer supported by the the companies that are making it or some of the, the stuff that um, just doesn't isn't quite fitting in with what they're wanting to go with. So there's some really good deals on uh, things there as long as and they also have some uh, they're running some flash sale stuff there, too.
1: It's the Tanger outlet of handle materials. Yeah. Uh, good deals on quality materials, but it's short runs. Mm hmm. Yep. Um, also I gotta be honest guys, Juma, I'm pronouncing it correctly. Especially that white kind of dragon scale Juma. Man, whatever I put that handle material on, it sells. Right now it's like the inverse. Oh, Kyle's just showing off some sexy green Juma that he's got.
2: The first the first two that I'm doing.
1: I'm telling you, dude, you got, got some, whatever, some orange, Dragon whatever I stuff. put it on that it sells. Um, take it for whatever it means to you. It's easy to work. It polishes out phenomenally. And right now, for whatever reason, it's selling really well for me.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Those were two custom orders
1: that I had. I like uh, the, the, The pinkish purple has got a pop to it, but the green I really like. For some reason, there's just like a natural connection to that scale kind of look to it with green. Um, And the white and the light blue really finish out really well for some reason. Cool. And that's all I got to say about that.
2: And we also have Jance Knife Supply. You can use kiss Out code KP grip for ten percent off handle materials there, and they've got all sorts of things for your knife making needs. Belt steel, uh, one of the all around suppliers of all knife things. Uh, you can buy ones and twos of handle material, or you can buy twelve by twelve or twelve by twenty four sheets of uh, bigger blocks.
1: So. If you want to dip your toe into knife making, you can get some blade blanks through them. Uh, you really one-stop shop. You could buy a little bit of handle material, some short rod material, a blade blank, put a handle on a knife, get addicted, and go broke. <laughs> it's it's what happened to all of us.
2: <laughs> How hard could that be? And then Seriously. our last sponsors of the podcast, Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives, the the finest kitchen cutlery and outdoor cutlery you can buy. And you can also find Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center. And you can find Den's Knives at the Cook Station, Blade HQ, Ridge Runner Blades, like we mentioned before, and Asheville Crafted Edge. You can find my knives at Northside Cutlery with Kevin Silverman. And you can also find some of my knife making tools at Phoenix Abrasives, the sanding buddy and sanding sticks. And you can find my uh, carbide straightening hammer at housemade.us. Uh, Brian and uh, Brent are doing great things over there. So make sure you check those guys out.
1: Um, looks like we've got Guild Watch Knife Show. Is yeah, that- I, apparently I put it in the wrong spot. Okay, good. Because I wanted to tee up your rant. Because we're like two years into this, 80 some odd episodes and and I've been the ranty one. I I'm, I'm the one that has had the bone p- to pick, the axe to grind. Mm-hmm. And uh I've, I I see something in the show notes I've never seen before because I didn't write it. A <laughs> Kyle rant. Yeah. I you know what? The, the, I I got to be honest, I'm a, I'm a little afraid, a little excited. <laughs> um I, I lay that Kyle rant on me brother what has got you fired up
2: so and i don't know what it is the last couple of weeks uh with some of my posts a lot of people have decided to try to sell their lower cost item of my thing on my post uh don't do that like don't do it on anybody's and uh (laughs) do kaboom yeah so um we're all trying to make our products and stuff. Uh, I I'm comfortable and think that I am fairly charging for what I'm charging for. Don't put on there that it's uh, too expensive and uh, buy mine for a lower price. Uh, not cool. And uh, we'll just leave it at that.
1: No, we're not leaving at that. I mean, you might be all wholesome and good, but look, don't be a jackass.
2: I was if trying I to make help you with the swear-free
1: episode. Wait, are you that toy? <laughs> <sighs> okay, next episode. Wait, does ass count? <laughs> uh, maybe. Okay, not when you put them all together, though. I, I, I'm torn between edited out and the inevitable. It's going to wind up at the end of the podcast, which <laughs> I never listen to anyway. Uh, but no, you were being very understanding on a hard, hard line in the industry. It's right up there with brown bagging at the shows. Um, don't me too somebody else's post and try to turn their post into sales for you. Uh, a couple of reasons. One, it's just incredibly rude. And two, you're poaching into their domain. Like the, if they're an established person with an established reach, those are their people. They're not going to take it well. You're not going to suddenly convince all of them to go buy your lower price product. Yeah. So take it as either an education on courtesy or take it as an education on business practices. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and Kyle's a really good human being. I've been trying to get him to post who did this to him so we could all pile on and tell them what sort of hybrid mule horse excrement person they are. Uh, But he's a better person and and hasn't, done it?
2: Yeah. And what's been really weird is it's been like three different people in the last couple of weeks. So. Not just any one person, but it's, uh, it's happened, happened three times. So I don't, I, I don't understand
1: why people feel well, the need to do that. Did you, did you respond with, do you know who I am? <laughs> no. Cause no. they might not know that you're the co-host of the knife perspective. Maybe. They, they clearly did not know with whom they were fornicating. with. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, I'm here for you, brother. Yeah, don't don't do that. Uh, shout out Gear Talks. Um, okay, I do want to give the people at Even Heat uh, a little love. Uh, I think I've been running. I've been I I've been running my Even Heat for two two and a half years, and I run pretty high temperatures. And my thermal couple started giving me some some fails. I wasn't getting temps right. Side note, the software on the kiln was great because it said, hey, um, I've been running for a while and the temperature doesn't seem to have changed. I think you might have an issue, mm-hmm. which saved me from ruining a couple of heats. And they were, they were great. I just went on the standard website, ordered apart, et cetera. Ordered it on Friday. It's now Tuesday, and I've got it in my hand, ready to go on without me reaching out and saying, "Hey, I need this right away." Um, so I, I've got to throw a little appreciation to them that their just baseline customer service was a couple of days to get me the part, and I didn't even have to call and go, "I'm a knife maker and I'm in a pinch." Mm-hmm. So. First of all, it's not a ding on the product. I have absolutely maxed out, used this thing on the high end of its temp ratings for basically two years. And I've just now had an issue, and they have been phenomenal to work with. I think it was 40 bucks with shipping to get the part within two days. Yep, it's very good. I was pleased, clearly, because I added it to shout outs and gear talk.
2: <laughs> i think i'm gonna monopolize the next three people though uh at least i wanted to shout out uh mark kohler studio mark is uh he's a artist uh he does a lot of cowboy and horse drawings and stuff also does all sorts of other artwork but he's also a knife maker in his free time and he uh he asked a few questions and i answered them and didn't think much of it but uh uh, uh he's starting to become a pretty good friend and he uh said can I send you my art book and uh sent me one and man like the is it seeing it on his instagram is really cool but the the prints that he did in the the book were really cool and uh he has some of his commissioned work in the back that people let him uh put in there and uh just some really cool uh painting and uh i think color pencils and just his approach to it's really cool so uh go check him out for for knives and uh seeing some other uh things that could spark some
1: thoughts uh in your knife making. Uh, it, part of me feels like I should uh I sh- ask some questions about what his questions were under the uh the guidance of if he wanted to know something somebody else might have. Yeah, uh I'd have to pull those up. But We'll that see. sounds like a next episode thing and look forward to uh, questions answered in the <laughs> next episode.
2: Um, uh, I don't remember them being anything more than where did you get something or something like that, but uh, I don't remember. Them Somebody being else questions.
1: might want to know that. Yeah. Uh,
2: my next shout out was Jeremy from Simple Little Life. Uh, he did he got one of my carbide straightening hammers and did a really nice video on it thank you and uh, glad it was working well for you and he said he doesn't have to do his uh, blade breaker of doom I think he called it (coughs) in his vice he had like a three-point jig uh, that he would use for in his vice for bending and straightening hammer or uh, knives. and he said he had broken almost as many blades as he had actually straightened in there. So he said he was super happy with uh, the two knives that he initially used them on.
1: This number includes me digging through the bucket of formerly knives that will never be. But I believe I have recovered 37 knives this year using the the straightening hammer.
2: Just from the bucket or in total?
1: In total. Okay. Um just for the record, I don't mess up that many knives in a calendar year. <laughs> Clearly some of that was knives that I pulled out of the bucket, but it, within the first knife or two it paid for itself. And I I have literally at least 15 or 20 knives that were in the bucket because they were just done. It wasn't going to be worth the effort to try and fix them. Uh, God. I mean, if Physically pains me to give you this many compliments in a single episode, but <laughs> uh, the straightening hammer has really worked.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, almost every time I do anything with MagnaCut, I'm having to give it at least a handful of wax to just get it that little bit
1: more flat. Um, just, just to get MagnaCut's attention. it's yeah. It's a little tough, you know? <laughs> Every so often you just gotta smack it in the head to get its attention and then you can start teaching. <laughs>
2: uh and then um when I was marking some of those hammers with my uh logo, I was like, uh, oh, the stencil's looking a little rough. Uh I should probably uh pull out another one. Pulled out my little uh envelope and uh I didn't have any more of my Cage Daily Oof. uh logo. And uh, I called uh, Patricia over at IMG Electromark and uh, told her the the number from my page. And uh, she said she'd have some shipped out by Friday. So um, That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, if you need any stencils for your electro-destruction machine, I think is what you called yours.
1: Electrochemical destruction.
2: Electrochemical destruction. Uh, IMG Electromark, uh, they're who made my... Um, by two electro uh, etching machines. And they also have all all of the different chemicals and pads and markers and everything you can possibly think of. Also, if you tell her uh, what steel you're using, I think it's even on their website, they have a whole big list of uh, what from their testing, which electrolyte uh, works the best for whatever steel for marking a white etch a black etch or
1: the the deep etching so um do they have any sort of setup cost to like some people it's 35 dollars for the to create the file 35 dollars to make the stencils so your first one's 70 bucks like what's their pricing schedule do you remember
2: uh the replacement sheet or uh, it was like a five inch by seven inch sheet. I think it was like $19 or something was the right. per sheet cost. But I, like I said, uh
1: I know I put you on the spot.
2: Well, I, I ordered, I ordered two sheets to begin with. And I, or, uh, the, when they printed them was January 4th of 2018. So um it's been almost five years and I've gone through two sheets. Um, we and won't I, hold them to their pricing. <laughs> I think, uh, I think it was like $50 or something for the artwork initially. Um but yeah, it was very reasonable I thought for the amount of stencils that I got. So,
1: we will put them on the list of people to check out.
2: Yeah. Um that's the the end of my shout out list for tonight. Oh, well, that went pretty quickly. You want to introduce a- our guest for tonight?
1: No, no, not at all, but <laughs> I feel like it's a requirement for me to continue to be the co-host of the show. So, um, without further to do or much more stalling, let's get into the interview. Oh, I'm sorry. The introduction for the interview. (laughs) All right, guys. Um, tonight's guest, um, there's several layers tonight's guest. Um, I really enjoyed getting to know him uh, during my recent Amazon trip. I I don't know if y'all are aware of that, but I occasionally go down to the Amazon River. Uh, During this most recent trip, it was a really good chance. We've met a couple of times in the industry across paths, but I've never gotten a chance to really sit down and talk to him. And I got some really good advice on running what I call the front of the house, the business side. Of running a business. And I've got to admit, he has, I mean, a 180 degree, very different design style than I do, but it is clearly very successful. So I enjoyed hearing a different perspective. So tonight, we are going to dive into a little bit of business and a little bit of design. You're going to hear uh, some different concepts than what we normally talk about, but Talk to somebody that's been successful at it, and that is Ben from Canaf's. How you doing tonight, Ben? Canaf's, I love it. I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? I am living the dream, man. Every walk of parade, every meal a feast. That was poetry. I love
2: yeah. it. Dan, Dan eats really well. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I love just it. just look at his Instagram when he's posting him from the Euphoria Greenville and stuff like that.
1: Although. I'll have you know, I am down almost an entire weight class. Uh, I, I've actually been, since the last time you saw me without my shirt, I'm probably down another 15 pounds. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it, it turns out that um, getting your backside whipped, see see what I did there? Getting your mm-hmm. backside whipped um, – By smaller guys is somehow less demeaning. So I've been working on dropping a couple of weight classes now that I'm. I'm looking at getting back into competition.
2: Hopefully, their shoulder holds up.
1: Man, why are you going to say that out loud?
2: (laughs) There's only so many wood surfaces. Yeah, you got to knock up here, bud.
1: Yeah, up on the the head. We're starting to digress into (laughs) the interview section, but I am going to touch on. You know, it's been twelve. 15 years since the last time I was really training seriously. And, um, now that I'm 49 training at 49 is very different than training at 35 or 39. And I, I have had to make some allowances for things are going to take a little longer. I've got to go a little slower. The, um, drill a little chat, a little pace of the old dudes. Wasn't necessarily just because they were lazy. Uh, (laughs) I I am having to make some changes both to my fighting style and my training style that I'm still not entirely comfortable with. That sounds like OLD to me, Dan. Um, Oh, Lord, don't. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Not an acronym. (laughs) Yeah. It's the army in me. Uh, I have a very strong philosophical point to make on that. You do know the only thing that is worse than getting old. Dying? Not getting old. Yeah. uh, Given the option, I would much rather get old than die. Yeah. So when I, when I get my aches and pains, I try to remind myself that it is the better of the two options.
3: Yeah. Hmm. I like that perspective. That's good.
1: Uh, I'm putting up with it until pharmaceuticals comes out with that uh, anti-aging stuff that only us high one percenters can get.
2: Yeah. I can't wait for like Star Trek where they just like rub the or wave the electronic device over whatever is broken and it automatically heals it.
1: As sci-fi series I used to read had kind of a transporter ID idea like Star Trek um, and like pogues and people that weren't in the field every so often would find a reason to get hurt or injured because the the way they stored your your physical information for the transporter was like at a certain age. So every time you got transported when you reformed, you reformed at like twenty five so yeah. every so often, like pogues and stuff that weren't going into combat or that sort of thing would find excuses to either get transported or to die to be brought back at twenty five
2: hmm.
1: all right and, and that's the star trek technology i'm I'm holding out for, yeah, I want to be beamed back to solid packs, flat belly rock hard muscles
2: for for me that would have been like when i was three yeah (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i want to go that far back not all of us
1: wrestled heavyweight dude
2: (laughs) i wrestled Uh, 189 and 215 also
1: fat slightly less fat no no i I can't
2: (laughs) oh man all right so let's let's bring this back around uh ben we always like to start with uh where did you grow up
3: yeah i grew up in northern utah A little town called Mountain Green, uh, kind of up in the mountains, as the name suggests. Um, Very creative.
1: Yeah. Was was there a lot of trees, foliage? Maybe there was a a distinct color? uh, Do you know what's
3: what's funny, Dan? Mountain Green is totally brown, like 80% of the year. And it's brown or white, depending on the snow, right? But uh, for about four weeks in the spring, it is so green. It's amazing, but yeah, it's it's kind of like rural Utah. That sounds like marketing. Yeah,
1: it does. <laughs> oh, sound like dang, marketing. The water is sweet. It's beautiful.
3: <laughs> One week out of the year, <laughs> and then it's like four feet of snow and like blistering hot in the summer. But uh, it's it was a great place to grow up. So I actually live about twenty minutes from where I grew up now. Uh, kind of did a grand tour around the country and ended up near home, which is great.
1: There's something about the the young man that moves to the city and lives that life. And then when he has a family, he comes back home.
3: Yeah. Except where I live, where, where I grew up is now like, uh, it's kind of bougie. It's expensive oh. to live there. It's like a, if you've heard of Park City, Utah, it's, it's kind of turning into a little Park City up there. And I'm like, ooh, I it's cannot live there. I would anyway. see
1: that pinky up. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a great place. So. Very cool. You know, being bougie doesn't have to prevent it from being great. I mean, granted, it does, I don't want to say retard, but decreases the possibilities of greatness. But bougie does not necessarily mean the place isn't going to be great.
3: That is true. I I look at bougie as like a a barrier to entry where I'm on the outside.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, now that I see you, now that we've got the camera, I get that. (laughs) Love it. All
2: right. So, do you remember what the first knife you had growing up was?
1: So, you sent me these
3: questions beforehand, Kyle, and I, I thought about it. So, historically, yeah, you're not
1: supposed to tell people.
3: No, that. I love it. It's a, it's a good journalism trick. <laughs> yeah, but you're not I'm supposed sorry. to tell people that. <laughs> you didn't hear anything. There was nothing here. Uh, it's funny because I I always used to talk about this uh this like Japanese explorer knife that was like this dagger knife. Uh, my grandpa bought it for me when I was probably like nine, probably a four inch dagger. But I actually realized I I had another one before that uh, from Yellowstone, probably when I was like five or six. Um, Just a little Yellowstone engraved knife with like a bottle opener on the back and uh, super cheap Chinese knife. But uh, I don't have that one anymore, though. I don't know where it ended up. So, yeah, that was my first.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm glad we could share that with you. Yeah, it was a good
3: one. I mean, it's one of those that you're like, well that wasn't very exciting but like I was a kid that walked into a gift shop and walked out with a knife like I think that's a it's a good indicator of success.
1: That adds yeah. 3 points right there to the top. Yeah, that's what I'm talking yeah. about.
2: A lot yeah. of a lot of my knives growing up weren't uh weren't that great of knives but um they they really served a purpose for a while. Um my one boy is trying to let me or trying to get me to give him this like super junky uh hollow handled survival knife that i had with like a compass in the back that's like got spray paint camo on the handle and stuff first blood one or two it it's it's not even first blood looking it's like <laughs> total like total garbage but i i still hold on to it cuz i i used to use that thing like with without a care in the world and now i'm like i have no idea how this thing didn't break in half <laughs> like yeah it's it's getting saved just uh just
1: for nostalgia because it's the only one intact left in the world <laughs> it could be so i i was in my late teens before i had decent knives and by decent i'm talking 70s late or early 80s uh buck and gerbers before that it was you know off off brand knockoffs from the bottom row of the shelves on the at the hardware store I, nobody had good knives i my first knife my dad gave me was a barlow and it was an imperial and it was a good knife but other than that, man I don't trust kids with more than a couple of dollars worth a knife
3: like, yeah. they lose them in fact funny funny story from this summer we go up to Montana every year. My son walked into the gift shop, bought a little swiss army knife with his name on it family tradition and uh yeah it was it was like a really horrible knife <laughs> and um uh, we, we went on a little hike and he lost it within like literally within two hours gone <laughs> and we retraced our steps and couldn't find the thing and uh it was gonzo so we, we went back the next day and he he did a couple of jobs around made a little bit more money and he walked in and he, he bought, his his name was gone because he bought the last one. So he ended up buying another one that said bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> so that one made it home from the trip. We'll see how long it lasts. But uh, again, a Yellowstone knife, a little Yellowstone knife for him. So and the circle of
1: life right there. The Barlow I had was lost for like 20 years, 30 years, which is the only reason I have it now. But I remember freaking out over losing stuff like that and really shocked at how understanding my dad was because he was usually pretty hard on that kind of stuff until i had kids and i gave them something knowing it was going to get lost and then they freaked out and expected me to get upset and i just kind of had that "Ah, uh, dad all right I, I get it now okay yes <laughs> hey, you know hey, do you want to do your dog question or can we jump to the the single question that People, we should actually do this question at the end of the podcast because this is really the only reason people listen.
2: You pawned your dog question off on me.
1: That wasn't my dog question. That was yours, dude. No.
2: You 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 came up with it and then you made me say it from for all those episodes.
1: That both means it was a brilliant question and I am a mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can do your question though. Well actually this is one of several rants that we may have tonight. Um, I, I feel like at this point we need to have Todd Hunt back on the show just to get some balance. I mean, we have had an unending line of wholesome guests one after another with these heartwarming Americana birds singing, waiting until marriage kind of wholesome Meeting your wife bovine excrement. And I happen to know this the answer to this question because Ben and I hung out in the jungle and dudes talk in the jungle. And the level of saccharine sweet wholesome goodness we were about to have is is just going to tip the scales to a a level I cannot tolerate. So I mean Todd Hunt, Dylan Fletcher. We got to have one of my people back on the show just, just to get some balance here. But that being said, uh, Ben, how did you meet your wife and where does it fall on the Kyle-Kyle scale, apparently? <laughs> I love it.
3: Uh, so my wife and I met, so Athena and I are business partners. So she she runs half the business. I run the other half. And so we've known each other. That's so sweet years. that
1: she lets you think you run half.
3: I know it's <laughs> true. It is so true. She's amazing. Um, so we met in 2010, note nine. As uh, so, I was teaching missionaries at a missionary training center in Provo, Utah. Um, and she had just recently returned from a, a mission, and uh, she was volunteering uh, with these missionaries. And she spoke amazing. She was super cute. Spoke amazing Spanish. We we spoke in Spanish the first time we met. And, uh, I thought she was from like the colonies in Mexico. Like she spoke so well, but she's like blonde, totally white girl. And I'm like, she's gotta be from Mexico. Cause like her Spanish is so good. Didn't get her name, didn't get her number. And, uh, just like let her go. Cause I was working, I was at work. Right. And, uh, we ended up having a mutual friend and I realized that they were mutual friends as well. And she connected us and, uh, I took her out. She was super weird. Didn't have plans to take her out again. <laughs> and then we hung out a few times after that. And I was like, actually, she's really cool. And uh, yeah, we got married. It was great. So 2010, long time ago now. Whew. Good spell.
1: Um, phenomenal story. And if I had a heart, it would be slightly warmed at this point. <laughs> um, two, my two fans, uh, two out of the six that are actually Dan fans. I want to offer y'all an apology. Yes, I heard him say missionary training, but I have made a commitment to this show that I was going to be PG. So I want to let y'all know I'm not slipping. I heard it. I heard the things that you thought and I was thinking them too, but I, I have made a commitment to Kyle. I, I, I am going to be... Boring for this show, so I just want brothers don't don't give up on me. I haven't lost it. I heard it too. (laughs) It makes the edit makes the editing so much easier. Sounds like less entertaining to me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Another for good old team Kyle.
3: Yeah, Kyle. From what I understand, you're the you're the wholesome meeting, and and Dan is the
2: yeah. I I met my (laughs) wife on uh, eHarmony. We. Uh, we talked for a couple of months and then we met and uh, drove up to Chicago. And, uh, yeah, we both uh, had similar Christian beliefs and stuff like that. And uh, just a really awesome lady.
1: Hey, I'm Christian. I'm just Old Testament. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then uh, then Dan met his wife at her grandmother's wake and uh, asked her. No, 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 no,
1: no. I did not meet her at her grandmother's well, picked her wake. Your- I picked her up at her grandmother's wake. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and it gets it gets worse. I mean I, yeah, I truly and technically picked her up at her grandmother's wake. Um her mom was my godmother. No blood relation, I want to be clear on that. Um not even by marriage, but there was all of these like levels upon levels of connection in our family that like were just Half a degree off of uh, unsettling.
2: Ernie, 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 Ernie. I
1: mean, that's <laughs> what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, it was also stuff like I, I. mean, it's true. I was ex-military, college dropout, work working as a partner in a small family construction company, and she was Duke grad, pre-med that went into the pharmaceutical industry and was already a junior corporate executive and i mean just on paper nothing i picked her up at her grandmother's wake um but i was clearly blue collar and just did not check any of the boxes for the arguably ivy league educated corporate executive you swindled her am i hearing that right you swindled her there's a reason she got pregnant right after the honeymoon Like, I got half. I got three quarters. That's what I'm. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) That's amazing. Nice job security. I love it. All right, but you know what? Tonight's show isn't about me. It's not about Kyle. It's not about our messed up or wholesome relationships. It's about you, Ben. Um, knife industry. Yeah. How did you get into it? Oh, it's such a twisty
3: turny story. So I. I never intended to work in knives, and I think even when I was working in knives, I, I never intended to stay. So, I was going to college and studying broadcast journalism and film. I was going to be a bright documentary
1: filmmaker. That explains the like eight cameras and three microphones you drug all through the Amazon.
3: Yeah, I did that. That was me. I felt like a I felt like a kid again. It was great. But oh, was uh, so so I made a couple documentaries in college, and I, I was working on one in like Honduras. I was, I was away for like 12 days and I get a, I get a call from my wife and she's like, Hey, we're expecting. And um, And you're like
1: expecting what? (laughs) (laughs)
3: And I'm like, sweet. I'm a thousand miles away or more. Right. And I realized like documentary filmmaking is not going to be a good way to support a family. It's going to be hard. You're going to be on the road. Um,
1: That's a young man's game, a single man's game. Yeah,
3: seriously, seriously. And so I started looking at it. And I'm like, well, I have this skill set. How do I use this in a way that is meaningful, but also stable? And uh, at the time, so this would have been like 2008, 9, 10, right in there. Uh, YouTube was starting to take off. Like it, it was going from like cat videos to like, you had actual businesses that were using it for marketing and stuff. And I ended up going to the symposium where... Uh, there was a speaker who was like, "Here's how you, you use gotta hold- you got to hold your pinky up to a symposium." Okay. There, there, uh, <laughs> there we go. And it was more like a like a, an evening chat with for free at college. And uh, was it in a ballroom? No, 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 no. It was an auditorium.
1: Oh, okay, auditorium. Oh, okay. And I realized, okay, you- that's more like a, a an index finger up then in,
3: in the auditorium. <laughs> uh, so. I go into the symposium and they're like, here's how you use YouTube for business. And I was like, it was a light bulb moment for me because I didn't want to do broadcast journalism. I didn't want to do film. And I was like, cool, I could do YouTube. And this is before like all the kids wanted to be YouTube stars.
1: I didn't want to be a YouTube star. I just wanted to make movies. Like, you I know? wish I could see your wife's face when you came home. You're like. I'm going to do YouTube and we're going to make money. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. So what I did is I started networking and trying to find like an e-commerce company that was needing video. Um, and I, I ended up networking into a guy that ran Blade HQ. He was one of the owners of Blade HQ. And we kind of made an agreement that I'd come on for three months on a trial basis and make videos about knives. And so our goal when I started was like, Viral. We got to go viral. Like that was the the buzzword of of 2010. You know, 2011. Like go viral. And I quickly realized that like viral is really hard, and consistency is so much better. And so what we ended up doing was we just started making videos about knives uh, for Blade HQ, and kind of cracked the formula in the knife community. This was back in the day when like cutlery lover was huge. Gavco, Tough Thumbs some of these guys that have been around for years and years now, they were just getting their start before they were knife making and stuff. And so we kind of cracked this formula of like, oh, here's how you market knives on YouTube. And I never intended to stay in knives. Like I, I applied all over like the outdoor industry and stuff. And eventually one day I was like, you know what? I actually kind of like this. Like I love selling pocket knives to people because usually it's uh, people are excited to buy it in a way that like, if you're buying, I don't know, a bathroom fan or you're buying like a two by four, like nobody gets excited about that stuff. You know, when people buy a knife, like it's a dopamine hit and they smile. And that to me, like as a, as a person creating content, as a person creating products, I get a kick out of people being excited about products. And so for me, I look at the knife, finally kind of made the decision. I was, I'm going to stay in the knife industry. Um, And so that kind of a condensed version of how I landed here, but it was a very deliberate decision to stay accidental entry, uh, deliberate staying. So
1: that's how I had kids as well. <laughs> <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, we can go back to the replay, but I didn't hear a single obscenity.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: So that that's really Um, cool. Um, Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Kyle. I'm being terribly rude and cutting you off, but you're about to say something to head, and it'll be intelligent and insightful, but it's a new direction. And I wanted to touch on something that we had uh, before we started recording. We talked a little bit about early days about misconstruing clicks and likes for actually having some financial value. Um. With you going into like being there in the early days with the whole marketing thing, at what point was there that transition and or what's the cautionary tale you would give people about uh, trying to go viral, trying to get all the hits and likes and what actual value that has?
3: It's a great question. I've I've been having kind of a long-term conversation with Yen Zahn. So he's got a YouTube channel that he's running kind of based in his shop where somebody follows him around and he shows things. And he and I were chatting at blade show this year. He's like, man, like there's only like a thousand people watching or 500 people watching. And I was just like, dude, it's the right 500. Right. And we kind of, it's sort of like created this philosophy in my head of like, look, if those 500 people are really, really stoked about your brand, those be kind of like your micro influencers. Those are the people that track your brand. All over the place. And so to me it's like having the right 500 that help you propagate your brand into the future. And so I don't think viral is the goal. I really don't. I think consistent, useful and knowledgeable is is the goal, right? Like if you are a, a knife maker or if you're a marketer, like I think sometimes people are like, let's hype this, let's go viral. And it's like, no, let's go consistent. Let's Let's go smart, and I, I think that was kind of the recipe for success. And in the different places I've been, whether it was Blade HQ or CRKT when I worked there, or, or even in NAFS, like let's just try to hit the hit the easy layups that we know generate long term value. Because uh, I think some people get really excited about the big stuff, but ultimately, like you have to be excited about the small things, the details and And eventually you might you might end up in a in a movie or whatever. I, I think I, I, I saw somebody the other day that was in John Wick. Their knife was in John Wick, you know, or whatever. You know that's cool, that's great. But like, are those people watching John Wick actually going to buy your knife? Probably not, right? So who is who are your, who are the five hundred people that actually matter?
1: It is better to have five people get your content in front of five people that are knife enthusiasts rather than 10,000 people that aren't. I agree with that completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you make the, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about the movie knives and in a few cases it made somebody's career, but that's all they had. Yeah. And you know, that market is going to freeze and then shrink. So if you got that for free, great, but chasing that, type of notoriety it, unless you get it pretty cheaply it's not a good investment i think consistency's better personally yeah and that's actually a great point too kind of it's about to be gun season here in uh south carolina you know it, it, it's fall so clearly all i'm thinking about is hunting but If you can go consistent with a food supply, you can get maybe a small number, but you can get, we'll say deer, showing up at the same time, interested every time. Where if you throw a whole bunch of stuff out there, you may get it for just a second and then it's gone. But that conditioning people to come back to you consistently for quality it's gonna pay off more long term. Exactly. Yep. Sorry, Kyle. I know that wasn't on the show notes or anything, but I I, I just that's saw good. a moment. I pounced. Yeah. Um, Seltzer Dan said said that that was a good idea, so I listened to him.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the The social media thing is one of the things that's always kind of baffled me. Like, i I try to try to do a post a day. the The last couple of weeks, I've been like a couple a week, but I uh, just needed to to take a break and like when you're doing it all day every day, like I have, I I feel like the people are getting bored with what I'm posting because it's the same kind of I'm doing the same kind of things like over and over again. But then I I have to remember that Instagram's only showing what I'm posting to like ten percent of the people that follow me, so not not everybody is going to see everything every time.
1: Well, and arguably you need to freshen your content to grow the number of people watching you. But if your goal is to provide quality to the people that are, to give them the product that they want versus growing your likes, Mm. then yeah, it's the same stuff over and over, but that's what they're coming to you for. You're not going to get a big channel that way. You're going to be, I think dogwood has been around on Instagram for five five years and I've been right there around 3,500 followers and that I jumped up to that in the first year or two. And then that's been kind of consistent throughout because it's not about growing the channel and having a bunch of people follow me. It's about delivering quality product to that little niche of people that I market to. Yeah.
3: There's a there's a YouTube channel that uh, my dad loves them. It's called Matt's Off-Road Recovery. You guys ever seen that one? Mm-hmm. So they it's a remarkable formula that they employ. Uh the the shooting, the editing, nothing is great. It's just it's fine, it's good. But the consistency, you always know the formula, right? We're gonna we're gonna start in the truck, we're gonna go somewhere. We're going to get them out, or we're not going to get them out, and we're going to have to go back. Ed's going to give us the weather report, all of these pieces. And so you begin to expect what's coming up. Um, and I think it's served them incredibly well. I, I think a lot of times we forget that humans love formulas. It's like every soap opera ever is a formula, right? There's a, there's a, Drama that builds. There's resolution that happens. Uh, I think Matt's off-road recovery is a great example of that. But um, it's it's like when we were doing knife banter at Blade HQ. We're doing this. It's the same format every time, and and we would get bored. We would like we we were in like a hundred episodes. Like, all right, here we go. Ooh, another.
1: look at me, another yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but Dan, the thing is, you, you get the, you
3: get bored. You're like, what are we going to put in this show? Oh, this? I'm looking
1: We're... forward to getting bored, dude. I'm not going to lie.
3: <laughs> yeah, but, but but what I realized is, like, people get used to that consistency. Like, it turns in, like, I've had people walk up to me, and this is kind of awkward, but they'll be like, my wife knows your voice. <laughs> and I'm like... Sorry, thanks.
1: Like, I'm gonna need for you to give my wife some uh, context. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> but, but I think that's the kind of consistency that you're looking for is find your 500, your 3000, whatever, and really super serve them, you know? And, and I don't think,
1: well, we're I don't, wired to look for patterns to yeah, begin
3: with. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think it's a bad thing to ask people what they want to see, right? Like, yeah. Hey, I am a knife maker. What would you like to see? Cool. Cater to that. Cool. Am I doing well? Is this what you're looking for?
1: Would you like to see more of this or that? I think sometimes. Side note, great market research. Yeah. Well, several people tell you they want to see something. Am I want to make that. Yes. But
3: I, I think sometimes we're like, well, I'm on stage. It's like, no, you're not. You're a knife maker in your garage. Like,
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You're. You don't have a shtick, dude. (laughs) You're you're a chubby redneck that grinds. Not wait. Okay, I am.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But but I think sometimes we we look at it from this. I am the actor. This is my stage, and it's it's like no. You're you're a dude doing your best, doing your best work, or you're you're a lady doing your best work, and ultimately, like. You ought to be listening to who's watching it and who's part of it. So I don't know. That's that's kind of how I've based my career. I in fact the the first one of the first Blade HQ videos I was on years ago, I got on there. we we tried a whole bunch of stuff. We tried different hosts and things and it oh, just weird, wasn't right? working. And I got on there and I was like, Look, guys, all the other hosts didn't want to be on here. And uh I'm like a twenty three year old punk kid that doesn't know <laughs> knives. Let's go on a journey together. And I feel like that's been like a like a an eleven year twelve year journey for me, where I'm still learning. Like Dan, you you and the Amazon, you showed me Scandi grinds and how to put a micro bevel on them. Right, that's something I'd never done. And for me, I I would almost say like my shtick is like I'm interested and I'm still learning. I think where people fall into a trap is they they say I'm an expert, I know everything. Listen to me. And then they, they set these really high expectations. I'm like, look, guys, the bar is really low with me. <laughs> like, lower those expectations because we're going to learn together.
1: Well, and willing to admit that you don't know something, especially when it's genuine, it gives you a level of authenticity. Yeah. Um, I've had a chance to work with a bunch of the the YouTube people sensations is that the word you're looking for Uh, that might be overly big I'm not that (laughs) big a deal but um, and pretty quickly especially being able to see behind the scenes you could tell the difference between the guys that they were only one one lesson ahead of the class and they were the ones that knew everything they always knew something and then there were the genuine people that are like hey I don't know this but I'm going to find out. Yeah. And we're going to learn together and you're going to see my mistakes versus the person that they knew everything, they never made a mistake. You know, kind of like the cooking show where they turn around and pull the the bread out of the oven and it's perfect. Yeah. And if it's perfect every time and they know all the answers, that's some scripted bovine excrement. Um the guys that are willing to say, "I don't know, but let's find out." Here's my mistake. That's the genuine guy.
3: Yeah, and, and I think that's that's something that people like to watch, and they like to watch it long term. You know, it's the the learning and kind of going back to not to make this about Matt's off road recovery, but that is that is
1: no, please do that is the or I, or yeah, well, it's whatever.
3: It's the hook, right? Like, what is the hook? Are they going to get him out? How are they going to do it? That is the hook. And I I think sometimes we have to think a little deeper about what is the hook, right? Um, I've been telling – oh, how do I put this? I've been telling a long-term story about myself via my brand, Nafs. You've been calling it Dan, and I like that, but uh, it is pronounced (laughs) Nafs. Um.
1: (laughs) You know, I take a certain pleasure in being a pain in the posterior. (laughs)
3: We love your obtuse nature, Dan. It's good. <laughs> uh, but I, I've been telling this long-term story, and it's, I, I, it's, it's the long-term story of me and my career. It's a professional journal that is public um, of learning and starting, starting my business, going from a side hustle to a garage hustle to we're now in twenty-four hundred square feet and have six employees, and it's chaotic and. And it's a lot of profit and loss and meeting with the, the contract CFO and all these things. And it's chaos, man. It's, it's pure chaos, but I'm, I'm telling that long-term story of like starting a business and entrepreneurship and ideas. And how do you take them following a passion? Yeah. Following a passion and, and building something. And people, I, I hear probably on the weekly people saying, I've followed your journey for a decade and, I I support you because I love the story. I, in fact, I, I'm I'm not making this up, guys. I had a we had a message come through our our um, customer service this week. The guy said, uh, "I need another liner lock knife, like I need an ingrown toenail, but I will support Ben and his business." And I was like, "I am humbled. I hope you don't get any ingrown toenails, and I hope you enjoy your your new liner lock."
1: <laughs> well, and the. I- uh, I hope you are able to to appreciate, allow yourself to appreciate that people are invested in you. They are, yeah, that, I recognize that they that. are there yeah. for that story of you. Yeah, and that's making that connection with people is is rare these days. Yeah,
3: well, it's it's the old saying, like people, customers buy the maker as much as they buy the knife, and I, I think that still holds up. I I know some really stellar knife makers that I probably wouldn't buy their knives uh, based on personality. Right. So not you, you included, know, Dan.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People follow you for one of two reasons. They either want to see you succeed and and be a part of that success, or they want to see the phenomenal explosion that your life is. Clearly that's the path I took. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not saying it's better. It's going to be entertaining, but it, it's nice to hear the the whole success thing can work,
3: too. I've got a quote for you, Dan. It goes, uh, light yourself on fire with enthusiasm, and people will come from miles around to
1: watch you burn. I love that on at least three levels, <laughs> just right off the top of my head. I, I'm going to have to research it because I'm going to steal it, but I want to know who else I stole it from. That that is beautiful. Thank
3: you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, it feels a little bit morbid, but it feels right.
1: You know, actually, it it it's pretty solid as me. Like <laughs> laugh at me, laugh near me. Either way, you're laughing. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> okay, we have digressed. Digressed because I use proper English. Canals. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Canals. K N A whatever canabs. <laughs> I speak proper English, but I read dyslexic. I mean, yeah. hey, I love it. I love it. I, uh, there's got to be a mistied knot in every rug to know that it's perfection. Love it. That's 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 mine. I love it.
2: So you have mentioned you uh, kind of roundabout got uh, hooked up with the the Blade HQ. Was that the marketing? person
3: no it was one of the owners
2: one of the owners yeah. um so what did that look like when you got started um did did you approach or do you approach them did if some if somebody's wanting to how do you connect
1: with people that are a big deal and I, i'm gonna be
3: perfectly honest they weren't a big deal uh this was 2011 right blade hq it was kind of blade hq and knife center uh duking it out um it's in terms of online knife sales and Blade HQ at the time, I think was like, I think I was employee 14, um, pretty small business, uh, doing, I, I don't remember a couple million, five, 8 million, somewhere in there at the time. Oh yeah. Pocket chain. Well, you got to remember Dan, like, <laughs> like 14, like you start doing the numbers on it running the math and. Um,
1: well, it was that level of business. I understand that's a, a small yeah. to moderate sized company. Yeah. But so like I came on, we got like 4,000 listeners. You gotta, you gotta ratchet it down like six, seven, 120 notches.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yeah. Not, not to get too businessy, but, but the reality is I walked into a company that was very small at the time. Um, and it was scrappy. I mean, I walked in, and I'm like, hey, do you have a computer for me? And they're like, well, we thought you had a, a computer to edit video on. <laughs> and I was like, cool, I'll bring mine from home. And, and they were like, and I was like, do you have a camera I can use? And they're like, yeah, we've got one from like 1998. That's yours. You got it. It's a
1: flip camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it records in Betamax.
3: <laughs> so so I start there and I, I bring my own camera. I bring my own gear. And like within a week, I burned out my computer. I had this, this MacBook Pro and it, it went south on me. And I'm like, guys if I'm going to actually do this, like, I need a computer. And they ended up buying a computer. And and it, really, it was like, prove that it's worth it. And then we'll start buying stuff. And, and I think that was a good philosophy. And, and we did. Uh, frankly, it worked the first round uh, that I was there. So I was there from 2011 to 2013. And I think when I left, we were at like, oh, like 60,000 subscribers on YouTube. And it was consistent. It was rolling. People were excited about it. And I left and I left it in good hands. And they kind of cycled through a few people. And I went to CRKT and did some fun stuff up there for about three years. And then Blade HQ called me back. And they're like, they, they basically recruited me to come back. And I said, make it worth my time and I'll do it. And so I ended up going back. And that's that's kind of when the knife banter years started. And that's... Probably where most people know me from it's actually kind of fun it shows people come up and be like man I've been watching you forever and I'll be like all right have you seen the basketball video I made at Blade HQ and they'll be like no I'm like all right you haven't been watching that long like there was a round <laughs> one and there was a round two round one was really funky round two I really like cracked the algorithms and understood marketing a whole lot better and that's where most people discovered blade HQ was through that second round and not pat my own back it was a team effort but I kind of walked into a situation that was really... But you led the team. Well, it was ripe. Like (laughs) I always say it's like marketing is frosting, right? Nobody wants to just eat frosting. Like The cake was already made. I walked into a Blade HQ that was really functioning well, and I just started putting frosting on it and sprinkles and candles, and people were like, wow, it's so beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But we had to have that frosting on there for people to really pay attention to it. So... Did that answer yeah. your question, Kyle? That was rambly. Wow.
2: <laughs> no, I I think that worked out good. So yeah, because I I've question? known about Blade HQ for a really long time. Like probably around 2007 was when I actually kind of got exposed to more more of the higher end knives. Yeah. Um. Like I think 2006, I bought a uh one of my first bench maids and uh was like stoked about that and then just kind of have gone uphill since then. But yeah, I've always been interested and I get asked a lot, like how do I approach uh, bigger companies to work with? And I, I I never really have that great of an answer. And I tell them, well, have you been to blade show? Do you have a table at blade show? Like make connections with people there. Then somebody will come over and look at your, look at your stuff on the table. They don't want to just, Look at pictures and stuff like that. They have a face to face communication with people it makes a makes a much bigger impact than an email or even a phone call if you can even get to the right person
1: yes, and it establishes you as a company and not a random name and If mm-hmm. none of that is working for four easy payments to Dan Eastland's introduction service. He can introduce you to numerous mid-level to semi-large companies. <laughs> my Venmo is. <laughs> yeah. Because
2: yeah. Um, ex- I've had like, um, I've, it's been recent that I like knife center started selling some of my knives and um, I obviously promote it when they're getting a batch and stuff like that. And I get a ton of people messaging me and I'm like, like how many knives have you made? And they're like um, somewhere like around a hundred. And I'm like, well, they didn't put an order in till I was like at I'd made like four hundred knives,
1: yeah,
2: and like that was four hundred really like pretty good knives, and well, that, that uh, wasn't four
1: hundred knives including your apprentice stuff. That was that was four hundred. I'm a maker knives,
2: yeah. So, um, in and it took took three years of bringing them over to my table at Blade show and them seeing like, yeah. He's making progressively better knives, and they're all our standard. Because when when people, when dealers and stuff bring you on, it's they're vouching for your quality too. So they want to know that you're not making bad stuff. Also,
3: can I tell a funny Knife Center story? Sure. Jason, uh, Jason won't like. Wait, us, wait, it hang on, hang done. on, hang on. Wait,
1: hang on. They are a sponsor.
3: Oh no, no, this is this is <laughs> this is funny. It, I
1: actually okay. think it's
3: okay. it's uh, it, to me it, it's a little bit of inner workings on on how the industry works. So I started NAFS. So I left Blade HQ in 2019, and we kind of started collecting dealers. We released the the banter uh, with Wii in 2020, right during the pandemic, and um, all the all the dealers picked it up except for Knife Center. They had like this lasting grudge that Ben from Blade HQ was not there anymore. They like refused to carry my stuff. So what I started doing, I hope Howard listens to this because um, Howard was like, no, we won't carry Ben's stuff. I started taking all his guys to lunch. <laughs> so like there'd be a guy in town and I'd take him to lunch and I'd send David C. Anderson a text and I'd, I'd send a care package. And uh, I'd say, just remind Howard that I'm alive, that I exist. And uh, <laughs> Howard's the, he's the owner of, of Nice Center. And uh, finally, I think it took me two years, kind of similar to you, Kyle. It took me about two years of like um, just giving just fraternal hugs to his employees to get them to pick up nafs and carry our brand in their store and they do now, and I actually love them and i've said this to them they The competition in the industry is so good uh the competition between a blade h q and a knife center is so healthy it forces people to Keep raising the bar. Yeah, you raise the bar, and uh, so I actually think it's really funny that Howard was so anti-Ben because I think he was watching these videos that we were making and seeing the success, and he's like, "Oh, Ben is the enemy." And then when I came out (laughs) with my own stuff, he's like, "No, Ben is still the enemy."
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and side note, that also speaks to the amount of impact you had. Yeah, that I mean, that he could see that you were moving product enough. That you are on the radar
3: oh yeah yeah and it's pretty cool now because you you got david c anderson who has they, they've taken formulas that we developed at blade hq and it wasn't our formula we just kind of refined it and stuff and they've they've turned it to their own good you know and i think it has made them stronger to be competitive and kind of be trailing for a couple of years so that they could speed up and be leading later you know um, so I get a kick out of it though. It was, it was a couple of years of like, I almost sent Howard a love note. I was like, Howard, let's, let's go, man. Yeah. Come on.
1: <laughs> well, I, mean, I love the way you killed him with kindness. Oh yeah.
3: You know, and that's the thing about this industry. It's so stinking small, you know, you can fit the whole thing in a, in a ballroom, a uh, big ballroom. Uh, everybody yeah. knows everybody.
1: When you do well, but yeah. if you do poorly.
2: Yeah. It's amazing to me. Like even like. Big companies that you you would think would be like hundreds of employees, they're like under fifty. Yeah. Uh, like I think CRKT w- I heard was like seventy five or something like that.
3: When I was there, they were hovering right around fifty.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, like you go into any Walmart and there's a whole like wall of CRKT knives, and it's just like fifty people are able to put out like that many knives.
3: I think, I think one of the tricks to what I'm doing right now, it's posturing, right? It's dressing for the job you want, not the job you have. And I I think the reality is a lot of people with NAFs thought that we were a lot bigger than we were just because we dressed like we were going to the show, you know, and we, we, we did our first booth in Atlanta last year and, I'm in a 10 by 10 and I'm like building the booth in the parking lot, you know, (laughs) like, but, but that's the reality is like, you can,
1: that's where you start too.
3: Yeah. You can be a small fish in a, in a small pond and you can grow, you can be a medium fish in the same pond, you know, uh, that's, I think that's one thing I love about this industry is you see people every six months, every year, and you just kind of, I don't know, you develop a lot of friendships and you develop a reputation in a way that's meaningful. Uh, I get a kick out of it.
1: Well, and to touch on something Kyle was talking about earlier about kind of your minimum to get a dealer's attention, um, uh, it's not just that you gotta make fifty knives, but you gotta make fifty knives that are all the same. They need to know that when they order a knife from you today, it's gonna be the same knife that they get from a year that they'll get from you a year from now. Yeah. Like it's not just that you can make a good knife, you gotta make a good knife. 50 75 100 times and yeah. they've been burned enough that until they see that you can produce consistently there's not even a conversation to start
3: well and I, I dan you and i talked a little bit about this in the jungle um about
1: wait wait what wait hang on wait Oh yeah, okay. No, no, no. We can talk about that. I, I, I'm not sure which. Thing <laughs> no, not know.
3: that. Not that. Uh, just talking about retail readiness, right? Uh, retail yeah. readiness being: Does your product have a barcode on it, right? A scannable barcode that Knife Center can take into their system, okay. and is there a SKU number? Uh, I forget what SKU stands for. Counting unit. Anyway, a SKU number is basically the unit uh, you use to. Hang on, wait. The engineer
1: knows. What is, is it, it Stock, called? Stock
3: something. Stock keeping unit. That's what it is. Yeah, stocking. stock keeping unit. Does your, does your product have a SKU yeah. on it? And it's interesting. There were, when I worked at Blade HQ, there would be companies who would use the same SKU for an entirely new product. So they'd change the steel on the same SKU and just ship it to dealers. And you'd get it and you'd be like, cool, this is SKU 123. And then you look at it and you're like, oh, this is M390 and it's supposed to be S35. It's an entirely new SKU. And so, Dan, when you say you've got to be able to make the same thing over and over, the way, that, the way that retail works is when you go to the store and you buy a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, that has a skew on it. It's a two-pack. It weighs this much. Like, there has to be consistency to it. And I think sometimes it's like, well, I'm just one guy in a garage. But if you want to go to Knife Center or you want to go to a Blade HQ and sell your stuff, you have to have a model that you can replicate over and over and over. Because they're going to take listing photos, they're going to throw it up on their site. And that's an investment, right? They're saying, hey, I want to reorder this over and over. Because basically, the, the work that you put in on the front end of that is uh, the heavy lift, right? After that, it's a restock. So somebody wrote, they took their, the product photo, they wrote the description, they tuned the SEO, they did all of these things to make sure that it would sell. And then when they hit the restock button, that's the easy part, right? Because at that part, it's supply chain. It goes from your shop but to them. They put it on the website. They don't have to touch it again, which is a
1: beautiful thing. But if you make them to do the front end side every time they order, Correct. they're going to be de-incentivized to order from you. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Depending on Unless the model. Unless you do that work for them. Yeah.
3: Depending on the model, right? Because like you look at like an Arizona custom knives, of course, they they're just planning on that front end work because they're not doing restocks. They're doing one-offs customs. And so, yeah, for me, I always try to provide retailers um, with the stuff that they need so that they can be successful. Like if you can provide an image pack and the, the copy to go on the website, it makes their life easier. So
2: yeah. And one of the things I always heard was like having your box, having the label on, on the end so they can stack them and see them yep gotta you don't want to just put them in bubble wrap and say here you go
3: right it's it's retail readiness is what i would call that Mm
1: -hmm. anything you can do to make their life easier increases your value correct yes um i'm going to kind of blend some questions because we've been a little all over but there's been some some real pearls here um Going down the path, going from kind of marketing sales to be in production, actually being the whole thing now, uh, are there a couple of things that you would touch on that you would have done differently or a couple of things that you're glad you did? If you could tell three years ago you something, what would it be? Such a good good question, yeah. Do you
2: want to back up a little bit and talk about how he got into designing his own knife before?
1: You know, I was. Yeah, the show notes were a little. There's a logic to them that you may not be able to see right now. I was kind of separating the business side and the the design side. uh, Because in my clearly stunted mind, that's the way I think. Okay. The, kind of the front end, I was going to talk about the business, but if you, if, if you know it, screw the show notes, I only spent hours on them. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just jump out of order and talk about design. And then maybe we can come back to how to run a successful night. Well,
2: I mean, like, how did you get into working with we to make the first banter? Yeah, was that it's where did they approach you? Did you approach them or?
3: It's a, it's a great question. Were there prostitutes involved? There were not. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> no, uh so it's it's kind of interesting. I I working at Blade HQ, I had the opportunity to work with kind of all the companies and you get to know the ins and outs of of not just their quality, but who is good to work with, who's hard to work with, what speed do people run at, you know? And so I had done a lot of work with wee knives prior they had sponsored a show that we'd worked on and we'd done a lot of cool stuff together. And what happened is I approached them and I was like, I would made my knife poster. So my very first product was this knife poster that has everything that I knew about knives on it. And I designed a knife in the middle of that. And I was like, well, I released the poster and people were like, what knife is that? And I was like, well, I actually just like doodled it up to show like a sharpening choil and a, a thumb ramp and all this jimping and stuff. It, like it doesn't exist. But people were like, oh, if that were real, I'd buy it. And I was like, wait a minute. I could design a knife and people would buy it. And it was kind of this light bulb moment for me. And so I actually took that knife to Wii and Savivi. It was just Wee at the time me and i i said would you guys be interested in making this knife and they were like yeah absolutely when can we start and i went back and talked to my boss at blade hq and i was like hey i'm interested in designing a knife would would this be permissible and he was like no it's a huge conflict of interest and i was like cool that's fine i'm a b c <laughs> <seeing> yeah <laughs> well i i think at that point i had i had realized that I had more potential outside of a company than I did inside of a company. Like I'd sort of hit that glass ceiling where you're like, I can see there's more and there's more experience to be had, but I cannot see it where I am currently. And so what I did was I ended up leaving Blade HQ. I took a job in corporate America uh, as a brand manager, managing stuff on Amazon. I wanted to learn the Amazon ecosystem. So I took a job in corporate America doing that. And literally, like, I announced I was leaving, and the next day we was knocking on my door, and they're like, "You ready to design that knife? Let's go. Let's let's do this." And I was like, "All right, cool." So, but what I'd realized between point A and point B is the knife on my poster is actually super ugly, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Well, let me let me throw something together." Kind of the knife that I would lo- would have loved to have, and everything I design is based on data. It's it's very much. Data points, right? When you're working in in retail, you see data all day, every day. And so, what I ended up doing was taking all those data points under three inches, G10 handle, thumb stud, deep carry pocket clip, and I combined them into a knife. And that was the banter. And so, that was the very first knife I did with Wee. People were really excited about it, and it did ex- incredibly well. And I was I was terrified because we launched it in January 2020, and I was, and then it was like two weeks later it was a pandemic, and I was like, oh, dang, like this is going (laughs) to flop. But it ended up like all the stimulus money, all those things, it was a great boon for the knife. And and it did really well. And I realized like, okay, this could actually work. Some of these numbers are starting to line up because I got four kids, I got a family. Like I needed the corporate America job to pay the bills, right? Mm -hmm. And so I saw that as a jumping off point and a jumping in point. I wanted to stay in the knife industry on my own terms. And that was a great way to kind of do it. So yeah, the banter uh, yeah, for lack of a better way to put it, it changed, changed my life in that it showed me you could entrepreneur your way into a job. And, uh, so it took me three years, three years and two corporate America jobs and a whole bunch of zoom meetings that just rotted my brain, uh, (laughs) before I took nafs full time in May of last year with my wife.
1: So I mean, part of full disclosure, part of the reason you're on is I love the story. Thanks. Um, but while we've just Completely ignored the notes and we're going to touch on design a little bit. Um, this is a point I really want to bring up. Uh, my design principle is I start with what is the purpose of the tool? Um, you come from a different perspective and arguably it's what the bigger companies are looking for. There's There's a lot to be said about it. And I'm not going to ask you to give up all of your your secret honey holes of of data and information. No, like I
3: I gave a presentation at Blade Show, Dan, where I talked about where do you get data? Amazon is a beautiful data mine, right? Go read Amazon reviews on your favorite knives.
1: And uh, Before – I'm sorry to interrupt, but before we jump here, I want to feed somebody. Uh, I just want to talk about – so what we're about to talk about is Ben – is demand-driven in his design principles, yeah. where I'm function-driven, and that's always what I've I've focused on. Ben looks at the market. He looks at what is in demand at that point and figures out how to fold that into a design. Fold it into function. Yeah, exactly. Or function, excuse me. Yep. Uh, and as you've, I've already heard, we're about to talk about the first point is where do you get your data? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's a matter of like watching trends, it's a matter of like like Amazon for instance, if you go and read take a a buck one ten on Amazon, there's a treasure trove of reviews there on a buck one ten that you can go and learn, right? What do people like? What do they dislike? There's never been a time in the history of knives when you have so much publicly available data. You could literally pay somebody to go scrape data off Amazon and give you like keyword analysis of this stuff and and that's kind of nerdy but do it yourself right go scrape that data and find out like what do people like about a buck 110 Well shoot they wish it didn't have a backlog well heck I could I could play with that you know they love a clip point right it's not like you go and copy a buck 110 that's not the goal it's understanding the market pushes and pulls and then designing around that and hopefully within all of that design language you're incorporating function as well uh i think I, I would hope that i i hit the function side uh secondarily but it's it's like we just we just announced a fixed blade today it's the first fixed blade i've done it's uh kind of a bushcrafting scandy knife and uh for me, that one is
1: probably Can one. Is a scandi grind with a secondary bevel? Yeah, a
3: secondary micro bevel at 17 degrees. I learned it from this guy in the jungle. He might have. Which is a
1: really superior edge. He, by he the might way.
3: have been a shirtless old man. <laughs> 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 no, but but it's it's that kind of concept of saying what, and this one may be a little different for me because I I kind of started with the idea that I I'd never done a fixed blade, I'd never done a knife in the U.S. I'd never, and I'm a designer. I'm not a maker. You guys are makers. I'm a designer, and I think there's a very clear distinction between that in a lot of ways. Uh, but I looked at it, and I'm like, I think that this will sell. I can see a niche where people are doing bushcraft. I wanted to go to Columbia and test it as well. But you, you kind of look at and it. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I'm glad I did too. It was amazing. But it's, it's sort of like, how do you design around a story, and how do you design around data? And I think a lot of times are like people will design something and they're looking at it going like, this is my gift to the world. It's like, nobody cares about your gift. They want to buy something and they want to have a story, right? Uh, and, and I think that that story matters so critically. I, I had the opportunity early in my career to go up to Chris Reeve Knives and film with Chris. Can we talk about them, Dan? Are they a social Yeah, yeah,
1: no, we, we're... <laughs> no no I mean, chris reeves under like some other people have never screwed me so oh, there you I, go uh i mean um rotationally sunk me yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's clean enough no so uh i
3: i had the opportunity to go up and, and spend like four hours with chris filming with them and i walked away like Buying into his story. I wasn't going to buy one of his. They were $350 of Benza's at the time. I'm like, that's way out of my price range. But I, I bought into the story and his precision. And, and I watched some guy like tear the knife down and like take a, a a pivot washer, and like sand it down micrometers, you know, and and it was really cool. And it, I I drank the Kool-Aid because Chris showed me the Kool-Aid and explained how he made the Kool-Aid and said this matters to me right and i think that's what a lot of makers miss is it's not just about knives because anybody literally at this point in the game can go out and design a knife like and i see it every day see it all the time it's easy like and
1: almost anybody can make a knife
3: nowadays. yeah but i i think that story element like chris reeve knives it is all about precision it's about manufacturing quality awards for 20 years straight like that is the story and when you buy that knife that is the story you're buying uh i think a lot of people discount story and as humans we just we love story it's it's innate it's visceral it's uh tribal you know story is is so critical
1: sell a knife with an oak handle and then sell a knife with thousand year old bog oak Yes. The tree was found on my grandfather's farm as they were excavating to make the new barn. See which knife sells faster and for more. Correct.
3: But I think sometimes people can't see the story, right? Like even if you went to, a, you went to a, a lumber yard and picked out that oak, right? Ask the guy at the lumber yard, where'd this oak come from, you know? Or maybe on the way, like you. And if that story's
1: not interesting, make one up. Well, I I don't. I don't know that I'd make it up. You would make it up. I don't know that I'd make it up. But but do not let facts interfere with a good story. We talked about. We learned
3: this in the jungle. Um, No, but I I think everybody has a story, right? Like, like maybe that piece of oak you threw it in the back of your truck that your dad gave you. Tell that story, you know, like. Everybody has a story, and I'm convinced that everybody has an interesting story. Even if you think your story is boring, there are pieces of it that people will relate with, you know, they uh, they care about. And that is that is the ultimate goal of marketing is to make people care about what you're saying and what you're doing.
1: buddy of mine, Brian Baer, he does a lot of things, but one of the things he does is does interviews. And I was always impressed with like, the story he got from people. And we were talking one time, he's like, what people don't realize is everybody's got a story. Yeah. Your knee jerk is, no, I'm just a guy. I just, you don't realize you've got a story. You lived it. So you didn't pay attention to it. But if you told somebody else it, you've got a story.
3: Yeah. And, and I think that's where like my journalism, like my back, my degrees in broadcast journalism. Right. Like, that is where the journalism side and the the storytelling side of creation comes from, right? For me, it's like looking at a thing and saying, what is the actual story behind this? And then telling it. And I I think a lot of people
1: struggle to do the telling. So it's especially if you're going to be factual, it's hard to tell a story that people want to hear. So there's there is an art to the storytelling. There is. I do. I, I, and clearly I struggle, so I, we'll leave that to the experts, but I wanted to circle around to something. Uh, you talked a little bit about your, your data driven or your, the approach you take on, you find a, a need in the market and fill it. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about Amazon was a great source of free data. If you look on the buck 10 reviews, that's a great source of information. But in the jungle, I think we talked a little bit about going to multiple sources and trying to find that common thread. Like you, you go to Buck and you go to CRKT and look for patterns. Like multiple people spoke positively about a clip point, so that's what you want in your knife. Um, yeah. I, I, how do you find the trends? It's such a good question, and and I don't. And not in the notes, so we can stall for a minute. Like. No, no, I I
3: love this. It's, a, it's such a good question. How do you find the trends? And I don't know I that think, I'm an expert at
2: it, truly. I think some of it just has to come down to your gut, what, you're, what you
1: see. And no, that's why some no. people... No, no, I don't want to hear the engineer saying it comes down to your gut. I want to hear the engineer that does the safety studies <laughs> telling me that it's accurate to the fifth decimal place. <laughs>
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I,
3: I think for me, I, I listen. I, I try to do as much listening on social media or trade shows or whatever. Like you, you just you listen, and I think there there are trendsetters that are doing really really interesting things. Um, like I, I look at uh, tactile turn down in Dallas in terms of yeah, there you go. Cal's <laughs> got one of their oh, pens. Oh.
2: Fidgeting with yeah. one of their pins right now.
1: I think Will Hodges. I would, but Kyle doesn't let me because apparently it creates background noise. The noise. Because you're
2: not quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so you you look at
3: what they're doing with like their micro texturing, right? It's beautiful stuff, and I would say that that is a trend that's happening, not just with their stuff, but like people are looking for. It's it's one part fidget, right? I would say fifty percent of a, a folding knife right now is fidget factor. Oh. Uh and so like what sort of textures are you using? What sort of I, I don't know. I I don't know that there are specific trends happening, but you can kind of get a sense of like okay, people are interested in this right now. I don't know, I think a lot of that comes from listening, that comes from reading. Um I think there are micro trend setters within within the in- industry that maybe don't have a ton of followers, but their opinion matters dramatically within the group
1: so a combination of trying to identify thought leaders yeah um and then reviews are a place where are there other places you, you talked about listening and trade shows or trade shows but that's yeah. that's got a barrier for some people are there and again i don't want you to, to to give up the farm here but are there places like when you say listen where are places to listen I'm assuming not the coffee shop or No,
3: I I would call it online listening. Uh and and truly Dan, I think I think you're looking for like a like an alchemy formula.
1: I don't have one. Uh it's so I I I should have told you this. Late in life, autistic uh diagnosis. It turns out I literally am looking for the formula. Like
3: I need to (laughs) I, I don't think there is. Like, for instance, um like, whenever I post about, like, the baby banter, my Savivi my baby banter design, I usually end up with two or three people in the comments that are like, I love this knife, but anytime somebody adds a but to the end of I love this butt,' that is, like, antenna for me to be like, okay, what could be better about this, right? Um, whether it's, for instance, on the banter, the original banter, we... We probably didn't give enough um, space for the uh, the liner lock, uh, and it's a little hard to access. And I think you could be like, "Well, no, I designed a perfect knife," and and you're wrong. Or you can listen, and you can say, "Well, sweet." On the next one, we're gonna we're gonna bring that front scale up just a little bit to give it more access for your thumb. Uh, that's that's the kind of listening I'm talking about. When even like our customer service, uh, we have people that will send us emails like, Hey, this could be better. Uh, So for me, it's a matter of like, I don't think there's a goldmine of learning. I really don't. I think it's a matter of saying who, whose opinion matters. How can I find them? And, and then you don't listen to every opinion, but I, when I start to see a trend of people saying, Hey, this is, this could be better. This is, I, I would prefer it this way. That's when my ears perk up and I say, okay, that's when we take it to R and D we take it to development and we change things.
1: We iterate. Um, And the, the masses can be wrong, but if the masses are buying it. Sure.
2: Yeah. If you get 20 people that are all saying I'm having trouble
1: releasing the liner lock, like might be something to look at there. Exactly. If the majority of people want something that is contrary to your design, do you want to be a knife maker or a guy that makes knives? Cause that's, A knife maker sells knives, and if a bunch of people want something, even if you disagree with it, you give them what they want.
3: Yeah. In fact, I've got a knife, the the big banter. So I've said for years I'm a small knife guy, small pocket knife guy. That's just how I am. Hold your jokes, Dan. Um, you know, that was
1: such low-hanging
3: fruit. It was clearly
1: a
0: trap.
3: <laughs> I saw it in your eyes. I could see it. But uh, I've always been a small knife guy, and people were like, I would I would buy the banter if it was bigger. And so I designed the big banter, and literally I I want to say I love that knife, but I do not. Like, it's just not a knife for me. And is that a money grab? Well, maybe. Sure, right? But at the same time, you're listening to what people want. You're taking a proven formula. And you're giving them what they want, and I think that's that's fair game uh to do that Th- at the same time though I, the big banter is just not the knife for me it's it's too dang big uh,
1: so one of the things I learned early is i people like me are very fairly narrow part of the population. if I'm going to make my entire career selling to people like me, that's not much of a market, yeah. I have fairly big hands and fairly short fingers. My hand is pretty unusual. If a knife is comfortable in my hand, it is going to be comfortable to the minority of people out there. Yeah. I have knife patterns that are uncomfortable for me to use. I don't like them. I didn't make it for me. I made it for everyone out there.
2: Um, Yeah. Like my paring knife handle, I don't find it extremely comfortable for me, but. I know a bunch of people that like my wife, she loves it. So works for them a lot better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Again, are you making a knife for you or are you making it for your market? Mm -hmm. And and I, I think that there's probably two
3: philosophies there. Like going back to Chris Reeve, Chris was adamant that a frame lock with a thumb stud was the knife. Like he hated flippers. He didn't. Like he was very adamant that he had found the holy grail of knives. And I actually think that was part of his, his mystique as a manufacturer is this is the way I believe it should be done. And therefore, I will do it this way.
1: Off air, we'll talk about the first time I met Chris Reeves and he reviewed one of my knives for
3: me. Oh, I love it. I love it. And, and I think that for some people, that is part of their story is they have this deep held belief. That they have found the perfect formula, and they keep making it. And they, I, I think, sometimes it's again light yourself on fire with enthusiasm, right? And even though you're like, actually, I don't, I prefer a flipper over a thumb stud, and I don't really like a frame lock. Chris believes it with every fiber of his being, and he built a business around it. And I, I think that sometimes we discount passion in the sales cycle too, right? Like if somebody can really, really believe in a knife,
1: it will sell. Well, perfect for you and perfect in the moment. both of those are trans transitory. You made the perfect knife for that moment. That moment has passed. You've got two choices. You can you can stick with what you made and try and, and continue your business on that notch or you can t- you can accept that the market's moved. You know, we're back to, do you want to be a knife maker or a guy that makes knives? The guy that makes knives can do whatever he wants. Knife maker has got to sell knives and pay rent. Uh-oh. When the trend changes from thumb stud to the hole. So you can spidey flick, you got two choices. You can double down on thumb stud and make that your career, or you can acknowledge that there has been a change in the market. And then it gets to be a moral question. In my case, is that knife still a good functioning tool? Then I'll bite on it. it. Is it some bovine excrement that actually is popular but doesn't make the knife any better? I may not go that route. And knowing that, I'm going to limit my marketability.
3: Yeah, I think an interesting example, kind of in that realm, is um, CRKT has a knife out right now. It's that folding karambit. Uh, I forget the name on it at the moment, but it's it's really interesting.
2: Like it has a couple of joints that uh, rotate,
3: right? A Couple yeah. elbows yeah. and joints mm-hmm. and things. Bless its heart. It, and frankly, like it started as a karambit. They've done an EDC version. Um, it's it's really cool, but it's a sh- it's a showpiece,
1: right? The mechanism is cool. The way it works is cool.
3: But if you need to actually like pull it out of your pocket and cut something like, and I'm sure there are people that are excellent at it. Every time I pull it out, I'm like, I'm definitely going to chop my arm off this time, you know? But but I think that that's part of their drumbeat at CRKT is innovation, right? They want to be innovative and truly it's an innovative knife. For me, I look at that and I'm like, well, the function doesn't fit anything that I actually want. It's not for me. But if you're somebody that's stoked about a folding Karambit fidget toy, man, it's awesome. Right. And I think that there's a place for that. I I think a lot of times I I don't know that I would do that because of the function side. But they see it and they're like, this is dollar signs and they got to they got to pay the rent. They got to pay their people. And it's done really well for them. And I, I admire that. I think that's that's business.
2: Yeah, karambit, karambits aren't my jam at all, but I can definitely see why people would like them. Yeah. But it just doesn't seem like an overly useful everyday carry thing.
1: I've studied just enough Kali to know that I am utterly incompetent with a karambit. Like in the hands of someone that has tens of thousands of hours of training, it is an absolutely devastating piece of beautiful art yeah i know just enough to know that i'm better off with a pistol i mean that's just the the american in me
3: the name is the name of the knife is provoke if uh, (laughs) somebody's listening at home and need to look that one up uh which is (laughs) dan you did an episode on on legal uh on this show and you had a lawyer on here i i would be curious to get the lawyer's opinion on knife names one day oh like if you showed up in court with with like a provoke does that help or hurt your case in terms of like the name itself right yeah
1: that's a great point because uh i've worked with i've had some protection dogs i've worked with with trainers and one of the very first things the trainers will teach you is your protection word should be things like defend protect because you don't want to be in court saying i then told satan's helper." Kill. No, 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 no. You want to be sitting there saying I told Fluffy McCloud to protect me. Yes. Like, that is a really good point that I hadn't thought about to this point. Like if you're going to call your knife the devastator, you may want to think that through <laughs> three or four steps. Oh, there's some wild names out there, too.
3: I mean, and, mm. and this is not da- criticizing anybody's naming strategy, right? I actually think knife names are like you could do an entire podcast on knife names. Cause it's, it's
1: the most difficult thing I do.
3: Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I hate it. I love it.
1: Oh, God. See, but, another again, 180 degrees off. I know, but we need both types in the world then. I, 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 you know. Crispy nougat, chocolate coating—like we work well together. That's right,
3: but it's it's interesting. You got names like like Malice and like just these really really aggressive knife names. And I always think, man, I hope nobody goes to court with that thing because you're just gonna lose. You're just gonna lose. I
1: I, I, decide I knives. my knives. I'm sorry, you pulled out your what? <laughs> Oh, your throat ripper!
3: Oh, I'm. Sorry. <laughs> Let's make that thirty years in prison, not three. <laughs> but but I do think that there's a science to to naming a knife too, and and I think that goes along with its intended purpose, right? Like we we just name this this fixed blade the Lulu. It's named after a pass up in in Montana, Lulu Pass, and it's easy to remember. I went to Lulu Lemon myself. Which hey, I'll take it. It's it's memorable, right? Like it's something that people know easy to pronounce yep. memorable two syllables uh you look at the mm-hmm. banter you look at the lander cedar lulu all of these names that i use on my knives i i shoot for very simple very memorable and easy to spell if possible um
1: double down on the easy to spell by the way yeah
3: knaps <laughs> you can find me i'm ben peterson you can find me at Kanafs.com. <laughs>
1: If they spell it out, they're going to find you, dude. I'm just saying. That's, that's true. K A. <laughs> yeah.
3: But uh, I, I think that oh, and I think now. that here. a lot of times people don't. They're just creating, but they're not thinking about knife design. And I actually had some great conversations in the jungle with Namanya. Namanya is from Serbia and designs for Condor. And I was like, Namanya, you've designed a knife, and basically that's like one one corner of a. A pillar right one corner of a building it's a nice knife but what about the name can anybody pronounce it he's like well it's a serbian name and i'm not dogging on serbia
1: he's
3: like it's a serbian well, name
1: serbia is this much of the total world population
3: right and it's hard to pronounce and it doesn't spell easily because when somebody goes and types in a knife name you want google to be able
1: to find it for them right and i th- hey, namanya tell me where the j is in that name Nemanja, yeah, it's but there is one, yeah, right?
3: And, and I'm not trying to dog on anybody's culture because a lot of times people will name knives.
1: Oh, you are, uh, and I'm telling Nemanja, when he comes with,
2: <laughs> he'll beat me up.
1: Whenever, whenever he does come to Blade Show, he said next year. He is frightening. I'm not going to lie. It is supposedly it is, but but just conceptually,
3: if your market is in America, you probably want to pick a word that Americans know and know how to spell. If your market is in South Africa, pick a name like I think I keep referencing Chris knives, Knives. They have a knife called Manundi, and I think it starts M N A N D I. Uh, it's hard to spell, right? And that's part of their stick. They're yeah. from South Africa. That's part of their their knife naming system. But I, I think that a lot of people say, "Well, my my great grandmother's name was." Whatever hard to say name, and that's what they name it. And it's like, well, that probably wasn't a good marketing ploy for you. So,
2: yeah, start yourself yeah. off with the best foot
1: forward. Yeah. So two syllables, easy to pronounce, easy to spell.
3: I have a I have a friend that he he names his knives two syllables if they're less expensive knives, and three if they are more high end. Oh. maybe that's getting in the weeds. I don't think it is. I really don't.
1: Well, I, suddenly I jumped to Bentley, Kregger, uh, Mercedes, Kona's egg. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, see now, it, apparently my standard for high end was just too low. Needed <laughs> to to go up. and Lamborghini. On. But I, I think
3: it kind of brings me to this point of like Ferrari. Oh, Ferrari. oh yeah, no. no, no. It's it it's creating yeah. on purpose, right? Like you're not just designing for yourself, and if you are, that's totally fine. But if you're designing to sell, you have to start thinking about the details and not just like Dan, you and I had a conversation about how you can tell a knife, how good a knife maker is just by looking at kind of the center of the pivot, that, that uh, area of the bolster. And I think that's really great. I can tell you if a knife is going to sell by looking at its name, its product images, its website, all of these little things that help you understand like, okay, will this knife actually sell? Because there are some really... There are some crummy knives that do incredible volume. And I think it's because they've packaged it in a way that is
1: ready to sell. You can have a good product, poorly represented it, and it's not going to sell. It's a little harsh, but we've said it repeatedly on the show. Better to have a mediocre product and good marketing than a good product and mediocre marketing, which isn't clearly an exaggeration to make a point, but so your point. Good pictures. Um, for the back end guys, does it have a skew with a description that saves them the time of creating that? Easy to pronounce, easy to remember, easy to spell. Look for common traits on trends. Yeah. I mean that's that's kind of the the demand driven design philosophy. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It, it, it... It's, it's a matter of like, I think sometimes people say I am a knife maker and it's, it's very narrow, right? If you are a knife maker, then you also must have a website. You must have the ability to get it in front of people. You must go to shows. And I, I think sometimes that gets, people. yeah, I think you. that gets overwhelming for people that just want to live in their garage and make. <clears throat> uh, but I, I think that's where you have to say, if I am a knife maker, truly trying to sell things, then I must and make yourself a list of five things that allow you to get your your name out there and and you go for it and you do it. And it, it's it's a pretty, pretty cool proven process. I think at this point, you look at somebody like take Joseph Vero, for instance, Vero Engineering. Uh, he's making these really he's designing these really fantastic knives and he knows them and he, he is working really closely. I think Best Tech does most of his OEM work for him. And he's created a remarkable business. It's really, really cool to see. But he's not just thinking about it in terms of design here in the center. He's thinking about it in terms of like, okay, I have a Facebook group that I talk to. I have my email list where I announce new things. I have my website. I'm out at dealers. And he's running a hustle instead of just um, an art studio. And I think some makers are art studios. And that's totally
1: good. That's amazing. Good.
3: But if you want to expand beyond arts studio, you have to think about the
1: business side of it. Well, and again, we're back to and for those that that have caught us midstream as far as the eighty three episodes. That's right, we have eighty three episodes. If you you know, feel free to s- don't go too far back. The early ones were a little <laughs> rough, but um, we've w- you'll hear us talk about knife maker versus a guy that makes knives. A guy that makes knives. He can do whatever he wants. It's art. He can make exactly. He can make art. He can make sculpture. He can make a knife be whatever it is that he thinks it wants to be. A knife maker. He's got to sell his product. Yeah.
3: There's a there's um, a an artist that I really like named Michael Coleman. He's a local guy here in in Utah, but uh, he does these beautiful, beautiful kind of um, Rembrandt esque landscapes and things he's a remarkable painter um i've read a little bit about his history and he he had all this talent but he his career did not take off until a gallery picked him up and started showing his work and i mean i think he's got he's got a painting in the white house now and he's got like one in the Capitol. like he's kind of got paintings in places that like he's a premium usa yeah usa painter but you like nothing matters until somebody sees your work and you have to think about that. And from the beginning, sort of the, the begin with the end in mind mentality of how do you think about a design in front of people, not just
1: in your workshop. And how do you make your design marketable? Yeah. Which is the data side. Part of the shift in thinking that I've been having to work on is not just the story, but don't, not just a good tool, but a desirable tool yeah. would that be. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And that's some heavy stuff. And I feel like everybody, everybody should take a minute, take that in. I mean, this is uh we've laid down a little more information than we typically do. <laughs> so take a minute, go to the bathroom. If you need to, uh, I'm going to have a, a little sip of my China, China. Um, Oddly enough, made in France. Um, And we're going to come back to, I want to talk a little bit more about the business side. Um, As a maker, I feel passionate. I feel pretty good about my making product. But I'd like to talk a little bit about how you you established and grew your brand. And uh, if I can really push this to like the two-hour mark, it'll drive Kyle nuts because somehow that's harder to edit. So, um, I did, I'd like to come back and, and, and talk a little bit about uh, the company side of it and maybe tie that back into some design principles. Sure. What do you want to know? Where do you want to start? Um, so zebras are they white with brown stripes or are they brown with white stripes? They're not brown at all. I, I was going to say,
3: I believe they're black and white, but your zebras, you're a few drinks in, Dan, and your zebras can be whatever color you need them to be.
1: Clearly, I'm the only person that has been to, oh, shoot, closeness with a zebra. If you look closely, they are actually brown and white, not black and white. Are they really? Yeah. Um, Wow. And that is totally not because I saw the zebra skin at my buddy's house that goes to a bunch of uh, safaris, and totally because... I was in a dicey situation that one day you'll want to hear about involving zebras.
3: Did you try to get one with a spear like Lynn Thompson? Because that would be epic.
1: You know, I I am so conflicted about that. Like, on one hand, you jackass, you threw a spear at one of the most deadly animals on the face of the planet. But on the other hand, dude, you threw a spear at... (laughs)
3: I think, I think he's a model of conflict that man, I, I sure, uh, I, you, you talk about entertainer, right? Oh, a, a PT Barnum entertainer. Yeah. And, and somebody who, who actually like not a fraudster, this is a guy that actually believes in his product and, uh, obviously he sold the business at this point. For but, better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. He, he genuinely believes in that his spears are the best spears in the world. Which And he literally thought you could hunt dangerous game with a spear. Yeah, put your money where your mouth is and and yeah, I I I hope the world doesn't fill with Lynn Thompson's after this after this podcast, but but I think that's a guy who knew what he was doing, how he wanted to do it, and then he went out and did it. And props to him for that, you know, like I respect that.
1: I think he took some missteps and did some silly things, but he did them full speed with Absolute commitment, yes, and I can respect that, yeah, totally, as a guy that has gotten out of some pretty messed up situations only because I committed to my already questionable <laughs> choices, <laughs> I can respect that um yeah, yeah it, not the path that I hope that take, but I can respect him
3: sorry I, I diverged this here, Dan, uh, what do you want to know about the mm-hmm. business like where what are the things that
1: would be useful for the folks that are listening? Um, we've got a pretty broad spectrum. I mean, of the eight to nine listeners we have, we've got like two or three that are hobbyists and that's where they want to be. And they listen to us for technical information. And then we've got two or three that are hobbyists that want to go part-time. And then we've got a couple of guys that want to go part-time to full-time. Uh And I think a lot of us know the technical side of making, but, struggle with things like how to establish and build your brand. Yeah. In, I mean, you had a background in the front facing part of the business and doing the business, but you in a very, yeah, I'm comfortable saying in a very short time have established and defined a brand and started growing it. And how do you do that? some combination of how did you do it and what are some things that you're glad you did and what are some things you wish you had done differently? Yeah.
3: Um, it's such a good question. And I, I don't know. I go back to the old saying of like, it's an overnight success that's taken 10 years and that's the reality of it. Right. Like I, I spent time learning on somebody else's dime and getting paid for it. Right. All of the algorithmic, yeah, all of the algorithmic learning at Blade HQ, and then CRKT, and Blade HQ again, and then Corporate America. Like all of that is not to be cliche, but they're arrows in a quiver, right? Understanding where you buy uh, UPCs and how to fix them to your products. It sounds stupid, but like that's knowledge that I acquired throughout an eleven-year career in retail. So. I think the the trick for me has just been learning along the way and, and then applying those, those learnings as you go. I think a lot of people want to know it all overnight. And for me, everything has been entirely calculated. It's been very um, consistent. Like I always wanted to start a business and I don't think I ever planned to start it in knives until I did, (laughs) Right. In fact, even when I, when I finished the knife poster, um, I was getting feedback from my friend, TJ Swartz. He's a a maker up in Boise. I was like, TJ, is this a product or is this a brand? He's like, Ben, you're an idiot. He didn't say I was an idiot. He's too kind for that. But he's like, Ben, you'd be an idiot. He's Canadian. (laughs) He's like, you would be an idiot not to turn this into a brand. This is not a product. This is the start of a brand. And I was really grateful for that because I think I needed somebody to just push me over the edge to, like, have that mentality of, like, this is not just a fun side project. This can be part of your life work. And so I, I think one thing that I'm glad I did is I wasn't making products. I was making a brand from the very, very first product. I had a website set up, nafs.com. It was a five-letter URL. It was known in the industry. It had 20,000 hashtag uses on Instagram and nobody owned the URL, $12. I bought it. I I trademarked it. You know, I I went and kind of did the due diligence to make sure that I could build a brand on this thing. Um, So I'm glad I did that at the beginning. I think that's one thing that many people kind of slide into things and don't know entirely what they want to do with it. I knew I wanted to create a brand. I didn't know where it would go. And to kind of piggyback on that, what do I wish I'd done differently? I imagine NAFs would be a company that made like accessories that made posters and mouse pads and did co-branded posters and mouse pads. And I got about two collaborations into it and and spent uh, $2,000 and made 1500 and paid a royalty of, you know, <laughs> like I wasn't making any money. And I realized like in the knife industry – if you're going to be in the knife industry, you must make knives in one form or fashion. Uh, unless you're Wicked Edge or WorkSharp that makes sharpeners, like that's their their gig, their jam. Yeah. Uh, you must be you must make knives. Um, you don't go to Blade Show and... I, and I, I think there are exceptions. Uh, Lynch Northwest, I think, is a good example of that, making pocket clips for knives. Um, some people have made it via, I don't know, backspacers and aftermarket parts and scales and things like that, but... Ultimately, what I realized is, if I wanted to actually run a business in the knife industry, I needed to make knives, design and make knives. And I that that almost sounds stupid saying it now. Like, well, duh, Ben. But I was like, well, I have all these relationships and friends at all these companies. You know, I, like, why don't I utilize that for to build something new and and interesting? But the reality is, like, people make money in the knife industry on knives, and so. I wish I had gotten into that sooner and and understood that sooner because I I think I wasted a couple of years thinking that I could be sort of this happy little dance with everyone sort of person and that's not how business works. So, and you're not that pretty. That's true. I cannot be the belle of the ball because lots of reasons. <laughs> yeah, fate. But- fate. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, you have exercised so
1: much restraint tonight. We, Kyle's proud of you. I'm proud of you. We're just yeah. proud of you. I, I appreciate it. I have, I, I got to be honest, I've done a lot of therapy over the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm actually looking over the notes because there's a lot that we've answered already. Um, before I start to touch in on some of like defining your style, your brand. Kyle, is there anything that you've wanted so to touch on? So you had
2: mentioned buying a... Okay, so thanks, Kyle. What I was saying you was... Mentioned <laughs> buy, I don't know how you mentioned buying guys a together. UPC. So I had always just thought <laughs> yeah. that was something you just kind of like went went to like a QR generator or whatever and made. There's actually like a yeah. a company that standardizes that and... Yeah, and it,
3: it, okay, so this kind of goes back to your business model, right? So I do business on Amazon. Amazon uh, checks all of their UPCs against what's called GS1, GS1.org. Oh. So you actually have to go and buy the UPCs from GS1, and you pay a yearly fee to them. It's it's highway robbery, but it's part of the game. Uh, you pay a yearly fee to own that UPC and have it in their database So when amazon when you upload a product to amazon it's checking that database and saying okay nafs own this product owns this product it is legitimate on our website cool you can pass uh so yeah you you can go and buy old gs1 upcs uh they're probably 10 bucks for a thousand uh but if you ever want to sell on amazon that becomes a problem really quickly uh because it's not in a database. You need that UPC to be in a database. But if you're just selling to knife center, yeah, you could go generate your own, uh give it a 1234 and uh it will you can put it in a UPC generator, it'll spit out a UPC for you and it can be scannable. But again, thinking about retail readiness, do you want to just sell to knife center? And I keep using knife center, whoever. Insert dealer X, Yeah, I I don't even, <laughs> Yeah, I'm just trying to make Howard happy.
1: That's my goal in life, I, which we appreciate. David Anderson, who's been on the show, is a phenomenal I human being. His poor judgment and friends and knives. No, but 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 I think that's okay, that's kind of what you
3: have to think about: is is my business? Because you don't need a UPC if you're selling direct to consumer, and your business is custom knives that are never going outside of that system. But if your ecosystem is growing with that, and Dan, I know you have a couple of projects in the works, I'm not going to spill any beans, but if it's going outside of a regular custom knife maker ecosystem, you need to think about, okay, UPCs. This UPC should be the same wherever it goes and it should be done correctly. So that's retail readiness for me.
1: Which which was some of the the great advice that I appreciated of... Thinking a couple of steps ahead of not just where you are, but where you want to be. To your point, if you just need to check the box for a couple of retailers, and that's where you want to be, then buy old UPCs.
3: Yeah. No problem. Well, and I mean, even like if that's not what you- Blue Blue Ridge Knives, the biggest distributor in the industry, they'll UPC your products for you. You don't even have to worry about it, right? And that's... That's value-added. That's, that's viable, right? And and if that's the route you want to go through a distributor, it's totally viable. And you don't have to do the UPCs. They'll handle it for you. But well, what do they take in return? They're taking a big old margin. And Yeah.
1: That, Are we talking... Yeah. And then you start shifting. Yeah, we'll do that for you. But now they're taking 40, 50 points rather than 20, 25.
3: Right. And that's, that's the game. I think a lot of people... I wish and maybe one day I'll do this. I, I had to sit down and do a a little master class on margins. And I don't know that I have it right, but uh we've got a CFO that that we contract with and he keeps looking at it, and he's like, Wow, look at that. You guys, you guys are great because he's worked in like uh solar like solar panels and stuff and razor, razor thin margins. And I don't say this like get fat on your margins, but you have to be able to cover your operating costs and pay yourself and pay your people. And I think sometimes people are like, Well, I made twenty bucks and it's like, Well, what if you could have made sixty? You know? Where does that put your business? So
2: Yeah, you made twenty bucks, but you it took you four hours to to make it.
1: Yeah. Oh. Well, and there used to be a conflict between like the retiree that doesn't need to make any money on his knives. He's just trying to recoup his materials cost. But dude, you're gutting the market. Yeah. Like you, you have an artificially low price, which kind of leads me to, and I've got this concept for a future show, a little round Robin, you and a couple of makers to start standardizing. Cause if enough of the makers get together, I hate the U word. I won't use it. But if enough of us get together and start standardizing our margins, um, when you go next step up and start dealing with third parties, um, when you start talking about delivery dates and proofs, and there's so much. I mean, just the terminology in this market is inconsistent. It is. It is. There is an, there's an opportunity for for us to start standardizing especially important things like margins well I,
3: I, I think i'm gonna disagree with you just a little bit there though dan um
1: okay so end of show <laughs> thanks for
3: <laughs> so jeff bezos always says your margin is my opportunity and he hmm. effectively has put his money where his mouth is with amazon where they've found places where they can squeeze out margin now i don't know if that's good for humanity or the world but on a business level, I heard uh, Tony Skolenbrain, uh, He was talking about how Buck heat treats their 440. Can't remember if it's C or A or whatever. They are able to squeeze out better performance out of 440 than anybody else because of their heat treat. And what that does is that they're buying. Well, and you can debate it, Dan. I'm. I'm not. No, a, no, no. Yeah, no. I'm, no, not, I'm I, quoting. I, I'm quoting on a business level. Can
1: we can spin yeah. off in a minute.
3: It's, so so leave leave the technical... like the heat tree like leave the actual performance out but on a business level what they're doing is they're buying an inferior steel and getting better performance out of it which improves their margin, right? And that to me is that's smart business. How do you take something and add value to it in a way that benefits your business and and helps you grow, right? Yeah. So I, I think standardizing that and saying, well, Dan, your time is worth easy numbers, $20 an hour and mine is worth 50 I don't think it's worth standardizing because your margin, you might be able to squeeze something out or move something around or like that burled oak canister, you know, like whatever it is, like that's your selling point. That's your unique.
1: I was thinking more along the lines of I dealt with some dealers early on that really roughed me up. Mm. I have Heard about dealers that I quit dealing with that um, young makers that don't know any better yeah, or unestablished guys that are literally giving away the farm, yeah. hoping for an opportunity with a third rate dealer. That's not, that's not going to market for you. They're not going to make up that margin they're beating you up on. Yeah. Um, and to prevent the flip side of it, the retired guy that doesn't need a profit margin from bottoming out the market on the rest of us. So not so much trying to standardize what each person's hourly wage is worth. Sure. But more of building a, you, you're you offering me 15%? No, this the industry standard for full custom is 25. Like, yeah. I clearly understand you are trying to take advantage of me. Yep. Or the flip side of no dudes, you are an unestablished maker offering me a one-off custom piece. You get 25%. Like, right. right. You're not getting 10. Um, yeah. And that was more rather than try to standardize what everybody's profit margin is more of a standardizing. What's what is, what is happening in
3: the industry? And yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting on a, on a business level. I, can't overstress the the importance of networking um so last year we we were working on a whole bunch of margin stuff we took it full time and went to blade show and i had a dealer kind of work me over on margin and i was like wow our pricing structure has issues and so i i reached out to three or four friends and said i don't want your competitive data but i want to understand what is industry standard for margins and they they were incredibly generous with their information and just said, here is how most people do it. Here's what I would recommend. Here's how we do it. And they were, they were super, super helpful with it. And I think that's the power of like, Dan, you talk about, hey, fast success. It's like, I have people on the line on speed dial that I can call and ask that question to and they can walk me through it and, and be incredibly generous with their time but also incredibly generous with their brains, with their knowledge, right? And, and that is, I, I think if there is a secret to success in any business, it is being able to give back and take from the industry that you're involved in. And sometimes you're taking, but the hope is uh, long-term you're giving back and you're putting more into it than you took. Uh, I, I think that's been a secret to our success and, and to my success within this industry
1: hopefully in the taking, you grow big enough that you can give more. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things that's impressed me about the industry is we're still small enough that we stay connected, that your reputation is vital. Yeah. And you made a point about being able to reach out to people. Clearly I've got a bias with the South Carolina guild. But your guilds, your trade shows, that's a great place to make those connections, even if it's a guild out of your state, to make connections. So when you're wondering about pricing, yeah. That's a great source. And and I would even go
3: beyond that too. Like a year ago in May, just as an example, I, I called up a friend that has been in the industry for years and I asked him about margins. And in, in fact, on the way home from Colombia, uh, I was in the, the Bogota airport, killing time. And I got a call from him and he's like, Hey, I'm overwhelmed in life. How do I get my life organized? And I had a great chat with him about, there's this book called Essentialism. Highly recommend. It's great. If you ever feel like your life and your, your commitments to yes, the things that you've said yes to are like constricting your life. It's a great book. Anyway, we had this really wonderful conversation about his life and, I know his business well enough to kind of say, yeah, this you might consider doing this this and this and it will help you kind of free up your time a little bit, right? And it's so one one year I'm asking him about margins, the next year he's asking me about like how do I get my life back, right? And and that to me is really valuable and I I don't know that I helped him at all, but the the reality is those are the kind of relationships that to me are are kind of the the sweet fruit of business is those interpersonal relationships.
1: Well, and it, it just kind of dawned on me that we've got an interesting opportunity here that Kyle is building his his custom line. That's kind of where his focus is. I'm moving to, to mid-tech. You've got a production focus. And kind of the the requirements for each of those are three separate steps. You know, Kyle, you're you're focused on design, material cost. Um, everything's in your shop. You're looking at like how to control cost in your shop.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, yeah, for the the custom knives is that, and then a good proportion of my business is the knife making tools with the the different things that I've been creating. Mm, Sell shovels. Turns out a lot of people, a lot of people get uh, frustrated with the same things I do. So
1: able to and help the bandsaw jig has been a life changer for me yeah and I anybody that has listened to more than four episodes knows how physically painful it was for me to give Kyle a compliment <laughs> um so but I, I've been using Santa Buddies for forever but that that jig it, it was really a good idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks um and then I, I've been looking at trying to deal with third parties and this kind of wraps up dealing with our notes and you're doing it at at a larger scale than I am. Once you move the production outside of your shop, that's overseas uh, in the U S you, you're giving up a lot of control. Any suggestions for the people that are looking to make that move? Like for me, the traditional model of you build and you go into production, and that's that's part of your core value. That that doesn't work for me. I'm a, uh, years old, and uh, that's not a point in my life where I'm looking to make a lot of capital investments. So buying a bunch of machinery was not on the books. Yeah, some of the younger guys they're not in a position to spend that kind of money. So when you start looking third party, any advice on pros, cons, what you look for, warning signs?
3: Yeah. Hmm. You could do a whole podcast on this, Dan. It's Oh, we're going to, but it is it, it, Look, we have we have 25, 30 different vendors for different things. Wow. That's everything from boxes to stickers to knives to soft goods coming out of Vietnam. And I think the the thing that I've I've learned over the past couple of years of doing this is you got to be patient. you got to be patient with yourself because a lot of times there's language barriers that you're working with if you're doing any importing, whether it's with the Italians, whether it's with the Chinese or Taiwan or wherever. You have to over-explain. Even in in the U.S., with the U.S. vendors that we work with, I try to, like, there's a lot of arrows and a lot of pictures and just try to be as succinct as possible, but as descriptive as possible. And then you just got to be patient with it, right? Because chances are you're going to say it wrong. They're going to interpret it wrong. And it's all going to come out in the wash. But I think if you're like, no, it's got to be, it's got to be perfect. Yeah, like... I think you got to throw perfect out of the window if you're going to do anything OEM, like you just have to accept that.
1: On the communication side, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say, run it through Google translate, and then run it back to English. And that should give you an idea of what your communication barrier is. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Even like I, I have a tendency, I, I love writing. I have a tendency to kind of get flowery. Or like you know, like if the I'm, lock must plunge as though it is. Yes, and I love that. That's fun. But when I am communicating with vendors and suppliers, it is simplicity. It must be direct. I use a lot of bullet points. I use a lot of like pictures and and descriptive stuff. I send videos. So I think my advice there is be patient. Right, be patient with yourself in the process, and be patient with the vendor because if you get like, I can't tell you how many how many bad knives we've gotten. Like, the first round of Lander 1s that we did, I'm like, holy crap, what have I done? And it was the first time I'm like, I have literally $20,000 of knives that I cannot sell because they're not perfect. And I, I think there's, there's a tolerance level, right? Can I accept this yeah. level of imperfection?
1: As you go from custom to mid-tech to production, your arc has got to open up. Yeah, it does. Oh. You know, production might be or custom might be a three or ten percent arc off of perfection. Yes. But once you start increasing the volume and dropping the price point, you gotta open that up of you do
3: and, and things and that's, are gonna be off. Yeah, and that's not to say like let junky stuff go through. That's not what it is, right? But you have to set quality standards that are pass and fail. And I think that doing your quality checks, your quality control is mission critical. Because that's your reputation on the line. And then you have to be you have to be ready to support that with customer service too. I think some people are like, Well, sweet, I'll just go make a thousand production knives and I'll make them with QSP in China and it'll be great. I'll make money. Well, a thousand of those
1: Why why are you staring at me when you I'm
3: not. I'm not, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staring at myself, man. Because that's what I did last year. I ended up with I got like two thousand knives on the floor of my garage and I'm like Ah uh, crap, there's a 20% fail rate, you know? How do I fix this for the future round? And on the next round, I, I had sent probably four pages of notes of things that didn't work. On the next round, we had it down to a 10% from the factory and we were able to repair it down to 5%. So I think you just have to understand, like, there has to be quality and you have to quality control it. But ultimately, you also have to be understanding that nobody cares about your product the way you do. So if you're not going to make every single unit yourself by hand or have your crew make it, you have to decide what passes and what fails and set that quality standard and then be willing on the back end of it to do the customer service required for your your quality standard. So that's maybe not what people uh, want to hear but that is the reality of of high volume production.
1: The upside to to this podcast is it's for makers. Yeah. Like you know, we're going to tell you the pretty side, but you're also going to have to look at the world. Yeah,
3: And I, I can't overstress the customer service side either. Um, the first person we hired at NAFs that was not not a neighborhood teenager, because we, we hired a lot of under the table neighborhood teenagers to roll posters and stuff. Um, God, dude, you can't say that. I said it. I said it. Literally. It's, it's two hours in, like the the... Sp- <laughs>
1: You know, they can't turn me in. You know, you're you're you got a point. The <laughs> DOJ agent that has listened to this much of the podcast deserves the conviction. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but uh you're right. <laughs> Illegal hiring practices. You got him. you want it you, you poor, poor no life. You having. earned it. <laughs> no, but the the first
3: person we hired that was actually like an actual professional was customer service and she jumped in and and really helped us clear out the customer service and take that over and, and do a good job with it. And I I think you have to accept the fact that if you're going to put 2,000 knives out into the world, you better be ready for 10% of those people to come back and say, I love it or I hate it or it's broken. I need to warranty it. Like all of those things, like, you got to have that infrastructure, that business infrastructure in place to do a good job.
1: Well, and if last year you did 200 and this year you're going to do 2,000, that's not going to be the same strain on your Your internal, your Your mental health. Is that what you're going to say? (laughs) Fortunately, I've given up on that. Um, I polled the voices and three out of the four personalities felt like that I shouldn't worry about that anymore. So, (laughs) I love it. But Um,
3: those are the realities of scaling. Like you just have to think, I cannot do customer service all the time. So you either got to outsource it or you got to be comfortable doing 200 knives
1: a year instead of 2000. Easy. And the other thing we've talked a little bit about and one of the other things that I would love to be able to get all of us peons, army ants, however you want to think about it together on is timing on some of the. And I'm going to own this right now. I got into it with a skewed perspective of. This is what how much time it takes for me to make 200 knives in my own shop. Scale that up to 200, 2,000, that's not really the way the numbers work. And the more people you get involved, the slower it's going to take. So when you get into the third-party realm, you really got to reconsider your time scales. Yes. It it has pained me. I have learned a lot of lessons and I like a little of, of your opinion as well. I have really struggled to be able to go not from concept to delivery, but from final draft to delivery in less than a year. Hmm. Um, I may be screwing up and working with the wrong people. And dear God, are you? you, Yeah,
3: are you over? Are you overseas or domestic?
1: Uh, I've been domestically focused, and my reasons for that were one, one, well, several. Got a blue collar background. that I yeah. served. I try to spend as much of my money in in the in the U.S. as I can. Yeah. Uh, and I looked at some stuff and a couple of people that I talked to, and they said, "Yeah, the money you saved going overseas, you're going to spend on. You've got to have a contact representing you over there, monitoring quality control and that sort of thing." So, even though up front it looked less expensive going overseas, at the end, the way I did the numbers and they their numbers, I may have been wrong. It looked going in the U.S. was yeah was comfortable in price, but I might be about to get a lesson on delivery times.
3: Well, it actually, I would say the the reason I ask let me let me talk about domestic first because that's kind of where you're doing business. I've noticed if somebody's on East Coast time, you better be ready to start responding to emails pretty early in the morning if if you're on the West Coast, right? You're basically trying to squeeze as much out of a day as possible. So, especially when it's communication back and forth. So, if they come to you and they say, hey, what is the jimping supposed to look like on this knife? If it takes you three days to respond to their email, you just lost three days. And those three days add up significantly over time.
1: At best, three days. You may have lost a week because it was three days on you, and they need to process.
3: So, so one thing I've noticed, and and I'll apply this to overseas manufacturing too. If you can keep the balls rolling, and they know that you're going to respond to their email within 20 minutes, and and I'm not saying you you don't disconnect from your email, but if you can be snappy on it, if you can, if they know like this guy is chomping on the bit, and we've set a timeline for this thing this is our deadline and this per like you as the maker are working toward that deadline. Like what I've found is most vendors, most suppliers will hit, hit the deadline because they know, Oh, this person is engaged and he's rolling real. to get that. Yeah. He's for real. One thing I'd recommend with overseas, if you're working with China, they wake up at uh, 6 PM mountain time. And uh, that's about the time they get to work and they go to bed at about, they leave work at about 5 a.m. mountain time. So when I'm working with China, what I'm doing is I'm picking up an email as I'm going to bed or or I'm hitting them with a 6 p.m. email and then getting a response and then hitting them with a 9 p.m. email. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm up early, I can actually hit them at the end of the cycle. What that does is it shortens your lead time, your communication lead time by days because they're not waiting for a response from you. You've basically just filled three days of communication by moving quickly. Now, I don't think that's for everybody. And I don't know that it's even for me at this point. Like, I'm just tired, right? Like, I'm tired of answering emails before bed and keeping that ball rolling. But it's the same concept with overseas and domestic. To get a project done in under a year, you've got to get organized to the point that your communication is just snappy. It is quick communication because uh, that's what slows projects down is a lack of communication.
1: Well, and if you're slow responding, you miss your slot. Yes. Like they have production groups. Yeah. Schedules and timelines. And the first person there gets the group. And if you're slow responding, then your production line is now at six months where if you had been sharp, quick, precise, decisive, you would have been in group one. And that's rolling out of the production line tomorrow. Yeah.
3: And I would say even even when you need moments to think, because I I feel strongly about making sure that you're deliberate in your designs, and and you might get a prototype, and they're like, "What do you think of the prototype?" And you've had it two days, and you're like, "Actually, I need a week and a half to test this." I will be back to you in a week and a half, and you build that into the timeline, and you you just establish those expectations, and, and it it works remarkably well. So Dan my my recommendation is if you want to get a project done in under a year, number 1 pair your project with the right vendor, the right manufacturer. I think that's a critical component and I I've written a little bit about this, but you should look at what that vendor has made already and then you talk to people that have worked with that vendor. So for instance, we just released this knife with White River. They were the OEM on it, White River knives. And They, I had talked to people who'd worked with them. I understood their, their manufacturing capacity, what they could do. And then I built a project around that. It's the same thing I do with Kaiser. It's the same thing I've done with QSP. Each of those vendors, I look at what they've created already. And I say, okay, I have this idea. Let's slot it into their machine instead of me coming and saying, well, I want this from you guys. It's like, no, I can see that you do this already. Now let's adjust it and make it mine.
1: Find the vendor, work to their strengths rather than trying to make them redesign.
3: Yes, exactly. So like this new knife has a Scandi grind on it. I knew that they had just come out with a Puko last year with a Scandi grind. So like, cool, they've got the double disc Mm -hmm. grinder figured out to be able to do that. Same thing with like Kaiser. Uh, They'd figured out how to do a crossbar lock and do it really well. I said, cool, it's I'd like a crossbar lock in my line. Let's do this. Here's the capabilities. Can we use this component and that component? And you build around who is making the thing for you rather than trying to square peg round hole it and say, this is what I need. You know.
1: Side note, what has helped me working with different companies is leaving the door open. Hey, if you guys figure out a better way to do this or you see a change that you need to make for your production line. I have found that that helps, like I said, leaving the door open. They know their production line. They know the most efficient yeah. way to run things through there. At least give them the room to say, hey, if we change this radius by eight degrees, it'll run through our line better. Yeah, And that won't be universally true, but at least leave the door open for the guys on the floor to be able to give you feedback.
3: I call that 85% design, Dan. And hmm. what I mean by that is you deliver 85% of the design ready to go. And you leave that extra 15% for the engineer and the machinist. Hmm. That extra, did I say 85, 15? It's getting late. The extra 15% for the- Or
1: we're a few minutes away from
3: it being early. <laughs> you are on the East Coast. I'm at 930, but- but uh, yeah, the the concept for me is you deliver an eighty five percent baked cake, and then you let them put their own frosting on it because they know the machinery, they know the oven, they know you, they know you, what's going to work best. And as as
1: frosting, are you,
3: are you a buttercream guy, like yeah. You know, oh, like, I'm a I'm a cream cheese frosting guy oh, all day. All uh. <laughs> you're such a foodie. <laughs> I have to tell you, Kyle. We're in the Amazon, and and all these exotic foods come over. You got caiman, and you got eel and piranha. And Dan like sticks up his little pinky, and he's like, "Well, this tastes like a filet mignon." Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> like, so, the fatty so, it wasn't cooler, eel; it was uh, fatty. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah so, tuna. so, it was technically it wasn't eel; it's electric fish. Okay, but it, they look the same. But man, oh. No, you're right I I must have talked about it before to you but it was it was like Toro it was like the fatty belly cut of I'm tuna. like Dan
3: give this give this a star rating out of five and he's like well the magnifique and he just like starts babbling in French and I'm like is that a three star or a four star can you
1: can you tell me <laughs> your simple ears cannot hear my recommendation <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it it was really phenomenal. Like it, yeah. I didn't, a, I, I didn't
3: like the electric fish at all. It tasted like a loogie. Oh,
1: I, I freaking loved. It. <laughs> um, so like, it, it had a, it was delicate, but it wasn't at all flaky. It was a it was a soft, firm texture, but it didn't have like like traditional mu- muscle fiber, so that. Like every bite was butter. And it had just, I don't know how they marinated it. But they marinated it for like 24 (laughs) hours to help break down. And then it was a light smoke flavor. So it was like really good toro, like a really fatty belly cut of like bluefin tuna with just a touch of light smoke to the flavor. It was fornicatingly. Delicious.
2: Curtis said it was really good too, so I I might have to go with Dan on this one. But
1: uh, Curtis also has an educated palate that hasn't spent years ingesting the desert sand the those winded arid locations.
2: Kraft macaroni and cheese. <laughs>
1: That's right. right. Don't <laughs> you knock the blue box, dude? That. <laughs> Blue box mac and cheese has gotten me through a lot of difficult times.
2: <laughs> All right. Um, you want to start wrapping this one yeah, up?
1: Yeah. We should. I mean, we ignore the notes, but we really have hit everything. Um, really to the point. I mean, there's a couple of conversations about like defining your your style, like how. Are there a couple of features that would that would represent your voice, your style? Um, and if it takes you three and a half to four minutes to answer that question, that'd be awesome because I need to pee.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I I like to say that I design blank canvases. I like to design in a way that people can come in and paint their own picture on top of it. So that's that's sort of my design style. I think some people are really really articulate in their design mine trends toward sort of the occam's razor philosophy of design is done when you've stripped away everything that you can instead of added everything to it uh so i definitely trend toward the simple
2: and that was kind of interesting too um one of your more recent videos i saw like they there was like some different scale design patterns that looked like they were like laser cut or something on there that you could add on and yeah um and then the the frosted donut blade hq that they like to do with a lot of that stuff and i think there was a another banter color combo i can't remember what it was called recently
3: yeah yeah the blade hq just did their dessert warrior pattern on the uh on the banter and i think it's fun you know i i I think sometimes when you deliver a knife that's really out there and crazy, like Elijah Isham's work comes to mind, just beautiful work, right? But it almost feels bad to carry a piece of art, uh, use a piece of art. They're art knives, and mine are very much blank canvases to do whatever you want. And, and that's part of the design philosophy with NAFs too. We release all the handle scales uh, as CAD files. We make them open source creative commons 4.0. So Which is awesome, by the way, thanks. It's, and it's cool. I mean, that's the thing as I feel like there are people that are infinitely more creative than I am. Why not make this easy for them to apply that creativity to my creation? And it, 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 like, you can't put a roof rack on your Jeep until you buy a Jeep. And so I make them open source because somebody's going to go out and design a really killer roof rack for this Jeep. They got to buy my Jeep first.
1: Well, and on on one side, um, oh, on one side you're arguably getting free R and D because they're figuring out answers for you. And then on the cold hard business side, on the back end, you're developing a whole market of people that like to week and mod their stuff. Yes.
3: And it's interesting because I think some of these really talented garage makers are growing with NAFs. I look at uh, Barnescraft EDC. He's a guy out in, I think, Indiana, if I'm remembering right today, but he's a garage maker doing it part-time. He does beautiful work. He takes my CAD file. I buy his scales and it's increased his exposure and it's allowed him, I hope, to grow his business a little bit more. And it's sort of this, I don't want to call it an art community, but it allows more people to be engaged in the product than...
1: I like symbiotic. You're mutually yeah, symbiotic. beneficial. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're giving him a platform to work on, and then you're buying back a, an improved product that you didn't have to invest in. Correct. And it's
3: it's giving him the opportunity to put his product in front of a bigger stage. And I hope over time that turns into... I don't know better. Better business yeah, opportunities. Yeah,
1: I'm a nice guy yeah. helping the community. We we've established that already. There's dude. also the <laughs>
2: the secondary benefit there too. Like bigger companies can't always adapt to somebody's like I want this in this one particular handle color. Yeah. Like here's a guy that can can help you out. So
1: yeah, if yes. you're not doing a hundred thousand units, Buck isn't modif- modifying their handle handle scales.
3: Yeah, they're not excited about that, right? So, yeah, I, I would say my my whole design philosophy is keep it simple and yes. and make it yeah make it as open as possible too. I mean, we're not giving away the CAD file, the whole thing, but I want people to be able to make it theirs and enjoy it and and be part of a community that's that's vibrant.
1: Yeah. Uh, two of the follow up questions are: What do you think's next? New materials, new designs, oh, man. where do you think the industry's headed? And why such do you think a, it's kitchen knives?
3: Why do I think <laughs> it's kitchen knives? I love it. You no, know, it's such a good question, Dan, and it's something I, I grapple with all the time because I, I almost feel like we're in a, this period of 1% better with knives, right? I don't know. Like, I look at what Winter Blades is doing with magnets. I think it's brilliant. I don't really want to be the guy doing magnets on my knives and, and trying to figure out the polarities of magnets. That's not what I'm passionate about. I think it's super cool. I think it's innovative, but that's not the niche I want to be in. I almost think for me, it's that 1% better philosophy of let's do customer service better. Let's do spare parts on our website. So like if you own a motorcycle from 19, I own an XR 400, uh, 1999 Honda. I can go on the internet and I can buy parts for that today uh, and slap them on the bike and and go. For some reason, knives haven't grown up in this world where parts are easily and readily available. So we offer parts to all of our knives on our site. Uh, And that makes me happy. It's a dumb little thing, but like if you lost a screw, you don't need to wait for warranty to send you a new one. You can pay 30 cents for
1: it and get it yourself. I have been trying for a year to get a replacement screw from Monterey Bay Knives. Mm. loved their knife. One of the screws that has come out of the pocket clip, I got down to the point that I sent them emails, just tell me what the pitch of the thread is, I'll buy one. If I could have gotten that replacement part conveniently, I'd have three Monterey Bay knives by now, because I really like the knife. But it's a pain in the ass running that part down. The fact that you'll send it out and don't do the the bs around send it to us and we'll evaluate and fix and i think you really hit on on one of a couple of significant gaps in the industry
3: well it's it i get the idea from it's it's the right to repair movement right a lot of there have been companies that for years and still will not let you self-service your knife if you disassemble you voided your warranty and I'm I'm a firm believer in this whole right to repair movement. I mean, this is, and this is not knives. We're talking about John Deere. We're talking about Apple, right? Like, why are we not making, and, and call me a, an eco-friendly tree hugger hippie, but why are we not making things that we can repair and that we can use and that we can pass down? Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me that we're, Just single using things and then it wears out and we throw it away. Like that doesn't make sense. Like, why don't we put the back end infrastructure in place to make these things sustainable in their own right? And And that's part of what I'm trying to do.
1: The the cold the cold part of me makes the argument of because you make more money selling a new product than a part. I uh, yeah. But then we now get into the the gray zones of capitalism and difference between short term profit long term profitability yes, yes. um they, I get so frustrated trying to track down a replacement part, and there aren't any
3: yeah, and it's like a vacuum cleaner, right? Your vacuum cleaner is designed to fall apart in five years, you want a new belt for it you're not going to find one and i just i just don't i don't understand throwing out an entire vacuum cleaner because you can't find a screw or you can't find a belt. Like it just is absurd to me. And it's, it feels wasteful as a human, you know? And I, I just look at it and I realize that we will create waste in our society. And I'm, I'm not saying like, I, like these people that are like, Oh, I produced zero waste this year. I'm like, no, you didn't like yeah. you absolutely did. Like every civilization in the world produces waste. However, how do you take the world's resources and be good stewards of what we have and and be smart about it? And as a business owner, that's part of what I'm trying to do is, and it's a pain in the butt. Like, I literally, like, I'm sitting right here in my, in my shop and I got 20,000 clip screws sitting back. It's probably not that many, but it's an absurd number of clip screws because I had to order in bulk and I'm sitting on clip screws. I'm like, I don't want to inventory that, you know, but... I'm committed to this philosophy of like, let's make things that last for one, and then if they don't work, let's figure out a way to fix them. Let's repair them. Let's write to repair it. So,
1: and it, it struggle with the turn and burn concept of making the dollar today, but I will argue a a right to self repair, making spares available you get generational loyalty that way. Yep. Um, You start talking about third generations of a family that buy your product that will always buy your product. And it's kind of like planting an olive tree. I may not fully reap the benefits of generational loyalty to my company, but my kids will, or if I'm going to be cold and mercenary, I can market that when I sell the company, when I hit 55 and I'm ready to retire. Yeah. Um, Yep. Either way, it's good long-term thinking.
3: Yeah. And that's, that's where my head's at. I I had this really interesting conversation once with uh, Eric Glesser. Uh, There's such a good story here. I I don't, I'll have to tell you in private because there's parts of it that are hilarious that uh, shouldn't go on the air but uh the yeah. part that i think is, is here that you
1: got to pay for the premium package yeah the premium <laughs> package
3: here's my venmo um no so so eric glasser i was trying to get him to do this promotion um with these socks we were doing socks at blade hq everyone had done it already benchmates the all these companies and eric sits down and he's like all right tell me about these socks you're doing and i'm like well they're alpaca are they marano? <laughs> You no, know, like that, those are the questions. Are they, are they fair trade responsibly sourced, free range? And I'm like, look, man, they're just some marketing <laughs> promo socks. And, but he, he kind of launched into this, he, he sort of romanticized Spiderco for me a little bit. And he's like, you know, Spiderco we've been around for 40 years or whatever at the time. I don't remember the exact number. We've been around 40 years and we're going to be around another hundred. Because we're not thinking about the short term. We're thinking about the long term. And he's like, after Amazon's gone, after these other retailers have come and gone, Spider still going to be here. And I was like... That feels like a little bit of hubris, but I like it. And and he wasn't saying it in a prideful way. He was saying it in that we are thinking not just about today. We're thinking about the long-term of this brand and this business, and we're going to move slow. We don't want to do your dumb sock promotion because it doesn't represent our brand. It doesn't go through our channels well the way we want. And here's why we're not going to do it, because we are building a brand that is sustainable long-term. And I respected that. I I
1: haven't forgotten it. And on one hand, it could be hubris. On the other hand, do you want to do business with a company that doesn't plan on being here in 75 years? Seriously? I mean, yeah. I want to do business with people that are planning on being around. Right. Their product will be here. Their service will be here. Their support will be here. Yeah. But I, I
3: think our mentality is disposable, right? It's slash and burn disposable. That is that is the American way. Is let's uh, cut down this forest and and you know without any plan for replanting or whatever, right? Like it's just we move fast and break things. But also, I, like I,
1: I I actually am going to go ahead and and counter that point a little. Okay, I'm leaving. Hey, thank God. I've been trying to get rid of you for like 30 <laughs> minutes. Kyle's been giving me the, this is going to be a pain in the posterior to edit. Um, traditionally, there's exceptions, but we tend to manage our resources fairly well. Um, I would argue <clears throat> that this cheap market concept, it's, it's cheaper to buy a new one than repair this one. Came late seventies, early eighties with a lot of the overseas products where again, yeah, it's crap and it's only going to last five years, but it's so cheap. I'll just replace it again in five years. And we got away from the third generational, I'm going to buy quality. It's not going to have a problem, but if it does, it can be fixed concept that was more America arguably was one of the last frontiers. It was certainly the last first world country that they were at the end of the supply line. They had to be able to fix, repair, or make on their own. There was no production capability. So it's arguably fairly recent that we've gone to this disposable economy. Um, yeah. where you throw it away rather than fix it. Yeah. I, but I agree that the end the end result of that is, is negative. We need to change this result apart from the keep the money in the states. If you're going to pay somebody to do the work, you might as well pay your neighbor. Apart from that whole concept, rapidly we need to get back to fix, replace, or repair yourselves. Yeah.
2: But I think a lot of people yep. don't value that, the knowledge to do that. Lots of people just want to do what they want to do, and they want to just not have to do yeah. the other stuff. Yeah. And,
1: and, and there's an urban metrosexual whole facet that we could talk about. And there's a loss of being able to work with your own hands. That's a legitimate aspect. I'll I'll give it that. But I also think there's a, a chicken and an egg thing. Uh, there's a lot of people, arguably a lot of us. I mean, there are certainly things that my father used to fix that I don't. That comes from couldn't fix it, so I didn't learn how to fix it. And I think there's also a concept of... Late 70s, early 80s, a lot of people were buying the cheap product back to, if it breaks, I can just replace it, but not paying attention to, you're not paying your neighbor to make this anymore. And it took 10, 15, 20, 30, getting old, a, a significant number of years before that that to start to show up, and all of a sudden, neighbor doesn't have a job anymore. Well, yeah, that's because rather than buy the locally sourced product that had slightly more cost but would last for fifteen years, you bought the cheap stuff from overseas that you were going to replace every five years. There's a little bit of starting to to reap the whirlwind that we sowed. And that, yeah, your dollar went further because you were buying the cheap thing, but you didn't pay attention to that you were putting yourself out of business. Yeah. Hmm. that's deep. I love yeah. it. I, I'm sorry, it was accidental. I really, that's not me. I didn't <laughs> intend to do that.
3: <laughs> I love it, and, and I think those are those are the questions that. You have to answer if you're going to be in business, you know, it, like, do you do business overseas? I do. Yeah. I do a lot of business overseas. Uh, but also, like, I'm trying to do more business domestically, right? And I think that's that's a smart uh, vertical integration or uh, spreading out risk strategy, right? Like, um, I've, I've been in debates with people online. They're like, all knives from China are garbage. I'm like, well, actually, uh, I can show you some really good ones, you know? Um, and I, I love the, the humans over there that I work with are incredible. Uh, but I, I think it kind of comes down to how do you want to run your business? How do you want to run your, your finances, personal and business finances, right? And everybody's going to do that a little different. And
1: there's some give and take. Uh, when I work locally, uh, one of the companies that, are doing some, that I'm working with doing some production work for me, I drove up, I checked out their facility. I saw what their manufacturing was. I checked their quality control. If there is an issue, I can meet the owner of the company at his office Monday morning. Yeah. Uh, When you start doing some overseas business, they don't ship until you pay them in full. Once you've paid them in full, they've got no interest in doing any other work for you. You may open up the box and find 300 knives that are out of spec and tough, Excrement. tomatoes tomatoes. Tough, tomatoes tough tomatoes tomatoes like like bruised lumpy fly infested tomatoes um uh, yeah you've now lost the entire investment in that product and it yeah. turns out that we're at the two hour 38 minute mark which means with the introduction that kyle has got to get me to do uh, which is way
3: harder at this state. Um, you guys should have, you should cut me off talking like two hours cut ago. Dan I'm sorry from for talking.
1: Uh, <laughs> it, it, it is your soft, delicate tones. Like literally I could listen, not Kyle, Ben, <laughs> Ben, I could listen to you read the phone book. Like,
3: Hey, I, anytime you call me, Dan, you got my cell. You just you, call me. I'll, I'll open up that phone book and read it to
1: you. You have both, You've got both the voice and the face for radio. <laughs> like <laughs> Gentlemen, thank yeah. you for having You're me. On. I so, thank so you, appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope you'd be willing to come back on and, and kind of do some deep dive on a couple of the things that we brushed over. Yeah, sure. Happy, happy to do it.
2: Can you tell people where to find you?
1: You can find me
3: at <laughs> That's, uh, knafs.com. That's dot NAFS.com. Uh, that is my business. Uh, you can find me personally on Instagram, Ben underscore Banter's, and that's kind of my rogue, say whatever the heck I want account. Uh, I don't say anything crazy, but uh, it's fun to kind of have my personal presence in the industry too.
1: It is the raciest PG thirteen I've
3: ever read. <laughs> <laughs> that is where you can find me. Uh, I have fun. It's it's a good it's a good place to be. It's it's been an industry I love, so I
1: try to give back to it. Very cool. Uh, the, the new uh, Bushcrafter, this will be coming out shortly, so you should still have some in stock. Where can they find that?
3: Depends on how well I did the marketing. It, that oh, will be on navs.com. And any fine dealer like uh, Blade HQ, Knife Center. Uh, thank you, Howard. I'm just going <laughs> to throw that
1: out. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to be impressed that you, you brought them into the fold.
3: Hey, you know what? that That's the thing. I don't hold grudges on this stuff. It's it's a fun game. I get a kick out of it, and it it makes for good yes. podcast stories. You know, so I love yeah.
2: it. And you can keep in touch with the podcast at kniferespect dot com. Listen to it anywhere you are listening to it now. And you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at Knives dot com and Dogwood Custom Knives on just Instagram. And you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Daily Knives at CagedailyKnives.com. and Daily Knives. pretty much any social media account that you want to look for. Thanks, Ben, and look forward to hopefully meeting you at Blade Show this year.
3: Likewise. Uh, Thank you, year. Kyle. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Appreciate you guys. Yeah. Absolutely. I want, to say,
2: I want to say good night, Dan? Good night, Dan.
3: Well, let's take it to the edge because that's what's
0: expected. Discussion. This is the night prospective